0: welcome to the fundamental health podcast i'm your host dr paul saladino this podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness in this podcast i will share with you everything i have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible thanks for joining me on this journey what is up you guys welcome back to another edition of my Lovely, heartfelt labor of love podcast, Fundamental Health. Here I am. I have super exciting news. If you saw my Instagram this week, if you got my newsletter this week, which you can subscribe to at carnivoremd.com, you saw the new cover to my book. The second edition of The Carnivore Code is now available for pre order. It's super exciting, you guys. Super stoked about this, the Carnivore It is being published through Houghton Mifflin. We are getting much broader distribution to share the message of animal-based nutrition, the incredible importance of animal foods in the human diet and the possibility of plant toxicity across the spectrum. So check that out. Please support me if you like my stuff, thecarnivorecodebook.com. It is ebook, print, and audio. If you don't see the audio book up there for pre-order just yet, give it a little time. It's coming. I recorded it. All of these will be available on the official release date of August 4th, 2020. If you like this podcast, please leave me a review at iTunes. It so helps this podcast reach more people. As I said in the beginning, this is a labor of love. This is probably one of my favorite things and your support means the world to me. If you've read my book, The Carnivore Code, please leave me a review on Amazon. You can go to the Amazon page for either the first edition or the second edition and leave me a review. It helps so much and your opinion matters. If you value this work, if you think this work has helped you, let other people know so that more people can benefit and we can show them that many people are being misled in so many, so many ways. My guest this week is a great friend of mine, a really amazing individual. Dr. Al Dannenberg is a periodontist. He's a specialized dentist that deals with gums and gingival issues and the bone of the jaw. He's like a super dentist, Uh, Not to take away anything from dentists, but he's, he's a specialized dentist. And after 44 years of practice, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. As you'll hear in this podcast, we talk all about the dietary changes that he made, including a carnivore diet that appear to have included, that appear to have resulted in pretty significant health improvements, and he is now thriving. His most recent PET scan showed no active cancer. This doesn't mean he's completely cured, but it's a great prognostic thing in someone who is given three to six months to live two years ago. So really incredible story. We also get into oral health, the importance of oral health as an indicator of microbiota health in the human individual. As always, we tie it back to coronavirus, underlying chronic disease and obesity epidemics in our population, which are negatively affecting our susceptibility to coronavirus. This podcast is so full of information. Do I ever do a podcast that's not full of information? I hope not. But anyway, worked really hard on this one. Tons of data. As always, I'm doing these on YouTube and iTunes. If you want to see the studies, they are listed in the show notes, or you can watch the YouTube video, which will have the studies on a screen share. So Dr. Al has an amazing study. You can find him at drdannenberg.com And I would also so much like to thank my sponsors who make this podcast possible every month. I want to you guys know that I love Nutrasense.io. Uh, they were so kind to share with me the uh, CGM. Listen to the Continuous Glucose Monitor podcast for information about what mine looked like, what a bad one looks like, and how valuable a continuous glucose monitor truly, truly is. You can find them at Nutrisense.io. You can use the code CarnivoreMD for a little bit of a discount if you do a subscription model. I think these are going to change healthcare, to tell you the truth, and I found them to be so valuable looking at my own glucose responses to various foods. Listen to the CGM episode if you want more about that. Nutrisense.io. CarnivoreMD is the code. You will be amazed at how much you get from these devices. Like I said, they're going to change medicine, in my opinion. They are direct to consumer. You do not need a physician prescription, and you can learn so much. It is without a doubt, in my opinion, some of the best money that you will invest in your personal health moving forward. Uh, This podcast is also sponsored by my friends at Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X. You guys have heard me talk about their pretty high-tech, pretty amazing, pretty snazzy and stylish Blue Blocking glasses. I have the Jasper, You see me wearing them in my Instagram. They're sweet. And, you know, my friend also showed me they have an amazing sleep mask, which makes you look like a frog. But my goodness, it works. It is the best sleep mask I've ever found. I'm sending one to my family. Check out Blue Blocks for the blue blocking glasses. I like the Jasper. You can get them in two different lens hues, darker orange like Elton John or a little clearer. If you want to look cool at a restaurant, nobody will even know you're wearing blue blocking glasses at night. You can use the code CarnivoreMD for 15% off your order, or check out a face mask. They make the world's best, the world's best frog looking frogman, face mask. It looks pretty cool. Bugman, frogman. I love these guys. B-L-U-B-L-O-X-Blue Blocks, my people. And as always, this podcast is sponsored by White Oak Pastures, whiteoakpastures.com. Sixth generation, 150 years, this farm has been doing uh, regenerative agriculture the last 20 years. I'm so excited in the near future to interview my friend Rob Wolf and talk about his new book, Sacred Cow, and just really talk about the way that regenerative practices, rotational grazing, grazing of ruminant animals in a way that mimics nature, is absolutely restoring vitality to the land, improving soil quality. White oak is like, they are the paragon of this. They are the people leading the way. Will Harris, his daughter, Jenny Harris, they are the, they're, they're just, they're doing it in the U S they are the superheroes. Um, so I love them so much and I'm so proud to support. They work. They do at white Oak. You can go to WhiteOakPastures.com. They have grass fed grass, finished beef, lamb. They have pasture raised pork, eggs, chickens, Guinea, all kinds of amazing stuff. And when you come to white Oak pastures in the fall for white Oak cella, I believe it's October 9th and 10th. I'll share more about that very soon. I will show you personally how amazing this farm is, how brown the soil is, how rich the soil is, how green the grass is, how healthy the cows are because they are raised properly. This is an amazing spot and they are doing good work. So you are supporting good work. You can use the code CarnivoreMD for 10% off your first order and you will not be disappointed. This is the best meat, some of the best meat that I've ever tried in my whole life and I promise you... This type of agriculture regenerates the soil and is the future. If we want to live on this planet for much longer, we better be regenerating the soil. It is the only way. Animals belong in ecosystems. Anyone who tells you otherwise um, really needs to talk to me and talk to Will Harris and to come to White Oak and be educated and see the good work that is being done there. So without further ado, onto the podcast, please check out Nutrisense.io. Please check out blueblocks.com and please check out whiteoakpastures.com. Enjoy this one with my friend, Al Dannenberg. It's a long one, but my goodness, you guys, like I said, there's so much good stuff in here. Don't miss out. Listen after for what is going on with me. All right, Dr. Al Dannenberg, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here, my friend.
1: Oh my goodness. Thanks for the invitation. Here I am too. Here
0: we are. So, we are going to cover so much in today's podcast. I talked a little bit about your bio in the introduction, but let's just start with your story because it's a very remarkable one. And I think that your story of integrative nutritional based biologic dentistry leading to your own health issues will be a great jumping off point for so many of the things which we're going to cover today. So, let's start there. Let's start with your story. In, a, in I, a nutshell, and we'll go from there. Lots of Oh, elements.
1: a nutshell. See, I was going to give you my 10-hour version. Come <laughs> right. on, what my nutshell? Oh, my God. Let me think how I can make it in a nutshell. So my story is, first of all, I'm 73 years old. So you've got to understand that. So I go a long way back. I was practicing periodontics for 44 years. But at the age of um, 59, I had a, a stroke. And I had this stroke. I had no idea why. I was five, seven inches tall, so five feet, seven inches tall, obviously uh, um, not a tall guy. I weighed about 187 pounds, so I was kind of chunky, I guess. I didn't realize that. I ate a lot of great food, lots of carbs and sugar and cakes and cookies. I thought I was healthy. <laughs> you know, I jogged a little bit every week. Um, you know, I thought I was OK. I had a stroke. Obviously, I wasn't okay. My conventional doctors saved my life. They put me on seven medicines for the rest of my life, and that didn't cut it for me. And I asked them, why did I have the stroke? What's going on? They had no idea. And then they said, "Um, just eat healthier and have a healthier lifestyle. Well, what the hell did that mean? So I needed to do some research. So I went to the organizations that I thought could give me some Direction: American Heart Association, the American Cancer Society, the American Diabetes Association. I thought they would give me the information I needed. Now, here I'm a healthcare professional. I had no training in nutrition or lifestyle in in dental school or graduate school. I'm a periodontist, and then. I'm looking at these medical institutions that should give me information. So I listened to them. I did what they told me to do. And let's fast forward from that point of 59 to the age of 66. And I was doing everything that they were suggesting to do. I maybe lost four or five pounds. I was still on seven medications. And then at the age of um, 66, I found a course in nutrition for healthcare professionals at the Kropalo Center for Yoga and Health of all places. Phenomenal course. I thought it was going to really hone everything, uh, hone everything from me and and just summarize what I learned. So I went to this program and I learned that I was doing everything wrong. And I learned about primal nutrition and primal lifestyle, which I had no idea what those terms meant. But after five days, I learned it. So when I went home, I called my wife before I got home. Uh, I said, I want to make some changes. When we got home, she and I batted heads a little bit. And uh, she said, I'll give you 30 days, so we cleared out all of the non-paleo type foods in the house. So we removed foods from the refrigerator, the, fr- uh, the, fr- um, the freezer, the cupboard, and we had seven bags of groceries we delivered to our local food bank, and we had no food in the house. So we went out and started shopping for wild-caught animals and uh, fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds, everything organic, basically became um, – Uh, paleo. And I started to um, integrate some of Mark Sisson's concepts with lifestyle exercise, that type of thing. I started to do that. And within two years from 66 to 68, I lost 30 plus pounds. I got off all seven medications. I felt phenomenal. I really considered myself the senior poster boy for Healthy lifestyle. And I started to incorporate all these concepts in my treatment for periodontal disease, and the patients that accepted this and there just a few patients, obviously, because you know what what does a periodontist know about nutrition and health? <laughs> but a few people actually listened to what I suggested, and they got so much better results as a matter of fact, once I changed their diet and they understood changes in their lifestyle, we could treat active gum disease, not severe gum disease, but active inflammation gingivitis certainly without any oral treatment in their mouth, just diet changed it. So they got, they got very excited. I got very excited and I was lecturing and doing um, uh, consultations all over the world actually on, on Skype at the time. And then here I am the age of 71, April of 71, I'm speaking at Paleo FX meeting. I'm leaving from Charleston to go to Austin. I have to travel through Atlanta Airport, which is big. And I generally carry my bag on my right shoulder and walk from the concourse to concourse if I have enough time. So I did that. And I started to develop pain in my right shoulder, which is very unusual. And that pain kind of lingered. I went to the meeting. I did my talk, went home. Everything was okay, except the pain just was annoying, and then it went to my back, then it went to my chest. I'm a little hard-headed, so it took a little while before I got to my physician uh, in August of 2018 to see what's going on. And he looked at me, he said, yeah, you got some soreness? I said, yeah, I got some soreness. Did some blood tests. Everything that he did, standard blood tests, CBC, chemistries, everything came back normal. He did another blood test uh, at the same time, which was the HSCRP, high-sensitive C-reactive protein, which indicates some kind of systemic inflammation. It doesn't say where it's coming from. doesn't say if it's acute. doesn't say if it's chronic. It just says something's wrong. And it was high. It shouldn't be high. It's never been high for me in the past. And he said, let's do an MRI. He did an MRI results come back. He calls me on the phone. He says, Al, do you want to come into the office and talk on the phone? I said, how bad could it be? Just tell me what's going on. He said, first of all, did you fall down some stairs or did somebody beat you up? I said, of course not. I just was carrying a bag on my shoulder. I think something is torn. He said, you have two verte- uh, two, um, crack ribs, a vertebral compression fracture and a crack in your right, Uh, uh, right side of your pelvis. And um, I think you have either lymphoma, leukemia, or multiple myeloma. Wow. Now, here I am, 71 years old, thinking I am the pillar of health. And I feel like the pillar of health, except I have some chest pain. And I'm getting this diagnosis or the series of diagnoses. So he brings in an oncologist. We do a PET scan. As you know, a PET scan is a a CT scan, three-dimensional kind of thing that they inject um, a radioactive glucose solution in your vein, and any cancer cells eat it up, and the CT scan glows where the cancer cells are. So we do that. There's a mass on the side of my spine. We do a CT biopsy of that and a bunch of other chemistries that are very significant for cancer. And my wife and I, my two adult kids are in the, um, the room of this oncologist who I am meeting for the first time. And he's a great guy. And he's my oncologist today. And he's a conventional oncologist. And he, he tells me, I have IGA kappa, light chain multiple myeloma, with innumerable lytic lesions in my skeleton. So there are a lot of forms of uh, multiple myeloma, but one of the ways to describe multiple myeloma is how many holes you have in your bone structures, and it may be one lytic lesion, two lytic lesions, five lytic lesions. The radiologists couldn't count them all, so they said innumerable. I have a skeleton that is like a, a person with severe osteoporosis and I have severe risk of fracture, pathological fracture. And that's what happened uh, without me knowing, um, breaking bones. And that's what caused my, po- my pain in the chest, um, which at that, at that point was pretty severe. And he said, and this cancer is incurable. There is no cure today for this cancer. He said, but, but we have good news, and we want to get you on chemotherapy right away. This cocktail chemotherapy will probably put you in remission. Um, you're really not a good candidate for stem cell therapy. You probably do bisphosphonates to help your bone structure, and you'll go back and, and you'll get in remission. And I said, well, well, then what happens? He said, well, unfortunately, the disease is going to come back. We'll need new chemotherapy, more caustic, because the previous wouldn't work any longer. And eventually, none of the chemicals, drugs will work, and you're going to die from the complications of multiple myeloma.
0: And this was
1: uh, when? 2008, September 2018. He mm-hmm. gave me three to six months to live at that point.
0: Three to six and, months to live in September 2018.
1: Right. And, right. And, and uh, you kind of imagine, I mean, what, how, how, what would go on in your mind if you got this diagnosis and prognosis? So I have to make some quick decisions and I'm trying to make some, create some quick quick questions to get some sensible answers. And, and my oncologist said that my quality of life would constantly decrease during all this chemotherapy, but it would get better once I was in remission, but then it would go down again. So I'm the kind of guy that I don't mind and I have no problem dying. I just have a problem with debilitation uh, over time. And, and I don't want to live in a decreasing quality of life. Like Mark Sisson says, live long and drop dead or something to that effect. I just want to live with a quality of life and drop dead. If I'm going to die tomorrow, okay. But I don't want to die two years from now with such a terrible life, um, quality for that period of time. So I said, I'm not going to do chemotherapy. Just not going to happen. And I said, I need to do some research to see what other options that are out there in the alternative world. And I got in touch with a couple of, um, uh, uh, integrated physicians. At this time, you know, I've, I've got, I learned enough. I've gotten a certification of a functional medicine practitioner and I got a certification as a primal health coach. So I knew a lot, but I didn't know a lot, you know? So I'm trying to find information out from practitioners who have worked with patients in a more integrative way. And they put me on like 60, 70 different capsules a day of a million different supplements. And so, you know, I started that and I did my independent research and created my unconventional cancer protocols. I went with that route and I've tweaked that all along, and I did quite well. I never was in remission, but I never got worse. I was seeing my oncologist every two to four weeks. They did blood work and everything was relatively good, but my, the biggest problem was the potential for pathological fractures, and I had several along the way. Now, in April, I mean, uh, August of 2019, now almost a year after my diagnosis, Although I'm doing well, I'm standing in my bathroom, feet planted on the floor, looking in the mirror, brushing and cleaning my teeth. I kind of know what I'm doing to clean my mouth, so I'm doing a good job, and I'm using some dental floss. I'm turning slightly to the left to throw the dental floss away. Now, mind you, my feet are planted on the ground. I know I have a fragile skeleton, and I twist 90 degrees to the left. All of a sudden, I'm assuming. All of a sudden, I think that's how it happened. My right femur snaps in half, and I collapse to the ground. I mean, when you're not with one leg, you can't balance yourself. I collapse. I break two more ribs and fracture my right humerus in half. I am in excruciating pain, and I can't move, but I can scream, and I scream really well. And my wife is in the other room, and I'm screaming, and she comes in, and she's an RN. She has she knows what's happening, but there's just so much emotion here. She calls the MS. They try to get me. It's it's difficult to get a stretcher into a bedroom, but they eventually get me into a gurney or whatever and get me to the hospital. And I'm ready to die. I want to die and I'm ready to die. I know that I've outlived my prognosis. And from this point on, I believe the quality of life is gone. So uh, they fix my right femur because I could have had um, a perforation of the femoral artery, and I would have bled to death. So they fix the right femur. They don't fix my right arm, the humerus. And they drug me up. They I have a catheter in. I, have, I need to use a bedpan. It is amazingly demoralizing. And I give up. They send me to a hospice hospital to die. So this is the end of August. Now, September... Uh, and this is a week or so later, there's a hurricane coming through Charleston and it's called Hurricane Dorian. It's moving at a one mile an hour. It has 187 mile an hour winds. It's very devastating. The hospital is ordered the hospice hospital is ordered to evacuate. They have no idea where to send me. So my wife, again, with her connections, she gets a hospital bed into the house, they evacuate me to the house, and now I'm in this hospital bed, the hurricane comes through, we have lose power for the next 13 hours. By the way, hospital beds are electric, so that doesn't move, I can't move. It's hot, it's sticky, there's no TV, there's no radio, there's no phone. Life is terrible, and I'm ready to die. So, my wife, smart enough, she's a phenomenal pillar of my life, and smart enough, she deals me some tough love, and and she says, you know, you've been a survivor all the way up to this point. You are not a victim. Um, Get your head together and get you, get back on your protocols. It really served you well until this accident in the bathroom. So she get, brings in a, a physical therapist. They work with me. The catheter comes out. I start walking a little bit out of the bed. Eventually, within two, three, four weeks, I'm outside and walking with a walker. I go to my oncologist, and I'm really doing fine, and I revoke hospice. At that point, my oncologist realizes that there are two new immunotherapy drugs that are recently approved for my disease, and they are not chemotherapy drugs. They are um, human-derived monoclonal antibodies to help take care of my cancer cells and the damage of my bone structure. And I now incorporate that into my unconventional cancer protocols. So that is now in October of 2019, and we can kind of move forward. Um, I'm continuing to tweak my protocols, and we can talk about diet along the way, too, if you want later on, but then it comes to May of uh, this year, May 8th, 2020. My oncologist wants to see how my cancer cells are doing. Uh, Again, I'm staying relatively stable um, with blood chemistries, and so... We do a new PET scan. So the first one was when I was diagnosed. There was a second one in sometime of June 2019 that showed lots of cancer. And now this one, May 8th. So I do this head to toe uh, PET scan. And he calls me that evening and says, Al, get your wife on speakerphone. So I do that. And he reads the uh, radiology report. And it basically says, there is no active cancer cells throughout your entire body. And I said, there was a pause. And I said, George, read that again. Read that again. I want to make sure I'm hearing what you're saying. And he is telling me that there are no active cancer cells. So I am literally floating on air. And he's shocked. He has no idea, didn't have any idea that that was going to be that positive. And the reality is I'm not in remission and I'm not cured because PET scans are only as efficient as they can be. So they only can see moderate to severe clumps of cancer cells. I can't see some of the cancer cells that are floating around. And I still have a little work to do, but I am doing extremely well. And here I am. And that's my story. And I feel great for a guy that should have died in December of 2018.
0: Right. And yeah. And there was... There's a very interesting piece of this that you that you left out al um, oh,
1: tell me tell me tell me tell,
0: tell me about how you've been eating for the last five or six months
1: Oh yeah, so let's start off that when i when I did my course in uh, Kropalo, I started paleo, so the age of sixty six to when I was diagnosed, I was a paleo guy. When I was diagnosed in September two thousand and eighteen, I did paleo, but I went more um, autoimmune, so i cut out nightshades, kind of, you know, things that may be triggering an autoimmune reaction or a a cytokine type of reaction. So I I did that. And then I did some phenomenal research. There's this guy. His name is Paul Saladino. You may not know him, but there he has this website. God, I'm carnivore MD who'd have thought it. So I started looking at things like that. And I found this website and I I started to read about the carnivore diet and maybe it's got some interesting ideas. And then I'm posting Uh, blogs every week about my cancer journey since I started on my website and people are responding and somebody mentioned this crazy clinic in Budapest, Hungary called Paleo Medicina and I look into that and I'm thinking, look, there are some case reports here. People that are on the carnivore diet that have cancer and they're incurable, but they're cured. You can't say that in the United States, right? But you can say that in Hungary. I mean, and yeah, Hungary. So I'm looking into it, and it, it makes sense, and I started January 1st, 2020, and I am doing it strictly. I mean, at least for, you know, I would say if I cheat, it's, it, it, you wouldn't call it a cheat. So I am st- strictly adhering to this carnivore diet, and especially a two-to-one or greater fat content based on grams because i am trying to be in ketosis as much as i can now the reason is that cancer is a is not a genetic disease it it is a disease of metabolic dysfunction and mitochondrial dysfunction so i know that i can address this uh, metabolic dysfunction by eliminating at least 50% of what these cancer cells want to eat, and that's the glucose. I can't get rid of the glutamine, and I don't want to do that, and I can't do that. Um, Thomas Seafried says there are ways to do it. I'm not so sure I can do that, but I can control this glucose on a carnivore diet if I'm on if I'm living in ketosis. And of course, the Medicina Clinic is telling everybody that everybody can live on a, a, with ketosis um, throughout their entire lives. And certainly, their, their medical uh, patients are r- getting results that no one is getting without other medicines, strictly on this diet that they call a Paleolithic ketogenic diet.
0: Which is really so which is really a higher fat carnivore diet and I'll get into all that and we can talk about...
1: Yeah. So, the carnivore diet the is, my, is my way to eat. Uh, yeah. So, they nuance it too and they say you, you need to be at least on 70% carnivore and you can have up to 30% healthy vegetables if you want. Right. Example. Right.
0: Okay. Yep. Yeah. So, I just think that, I mean, I, I wanted in the beginning of the podcast to to kind of show people what's an interesting part of this case study. And there's so many pieces of this that we're going to go deeper into in this podcast. The first is, I definitely want to talk about your experience as a periodontist, which, as I understand it, is is someone that's trained as a dentist, but really works with the gums and the the other soft tissues of the mouth. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, the gum, the tooth structure, the bone surrounding the gum, and Mm -hmm. everything around the jaw as far as infection is concerned. Yes, Mm -hmm. definitely.
0: And most people will know that, that I have a lot of interest in the work of Weston Price from the 1930s and 1940s, who was a, was a dentist. And I think that one of the cool things about having you on the show right now is that I've always wanted to have someone who dealt with the mouth. I wanted to have a mouth doctor on the show because I've always been very vocal about the fact that i don't believe in systems medicine i don't believe that there there is a balkanization of systems in the body or there should be a siloing of individual specialties in medicine and i've always thought that the the mouth health and this is not surprising to most people who will listen to this podcast but the health of the mouth and especially the health of the teeth and the gums but the whole mouth in general is as you've said such a reflection of the whole body. And I've never had anyone who can speak to that on the podcast. So we're going to talk about that for sure. But in addition to that, you have this own incredibly fascinating story of your own recovery. And when you were, we've been emailing now for months and months. And when when you mentioned that your recent PET scan was negative, I thought that's a really cool point to highlight that Here's a gentleman who is doing many things, and we're going to talk about your, as you call your, your non-traditional cancer protocol, and you're including a couple of monoclonal antibodies, which are with mainstream medicine are probably having an effect, and you're also eating an entirely animal-based diet and seeing a very good response to a cancer that should have, you know, according to all prognoses, was going to kill you over a year ago, and right now we can talk about how you're doing now, but I just wanted to make sure that we highlight that. At the beginning of the podcast, we'll go through some of the cases from the Paleo Medicina Clinic in Hungary. We can talk about our opinions. We may differ a little bit on the, the metabolic theory of cancer, and we can get into the Warburg hypothesis and the Warburg effect, which is a little bit granular. But I think I thank you for sharing your story because I just wanted to highlight at the beginning that here's, a, here's Al, you know, this, this decorated periodontist who's been practicing for 44 years, knows the mouth very well, had your own personal story, of transition from what sounds like a pretty standard American diet um, causing a stroke at age of 59. Western medicine, unfortunately, uh, doesn't really have a lot of answers for why that happened when, in fact, it was maybe kind of obvious that that had to do with the fact that you were eating a basically standard American diet. And, And I want to make sure that in the podcast, we highlight that, at least from my perspective, and we may differ on this, that, that all carbohydrates are not created equal, <laughs> and you know, you you know, people will say I was eating lots of carbohydrates, and I, th- I would it would be interesting to hear about what carbohydrates you were eating before pizza, you broke at age fifty nine. Pizza, popcorn,
1: 59. pizza, popcorn. You know, okay. so these uh, are carbs. Submarines. These are real carbs that. Everybody, sadly enough, that is unhealthy in the United States, are eating every day for every meal. And if they're not eating it uh, at a fast uh, drive-through restaurant, it's in their processed foods. If they only look at the ingredients, you know, you can buy f- foods at Whole Foods, but it doesn't mean it's healthy. Just look at the ingredient level uh, label.
0: So these right? are grain-based carbohydrates, and right. as you're suggesting, the advice to you as A someone who had obesity as a 59 year old who was 5'7, 189 pounds, maybe your BMI was 27 or 28, who knows? Um, You know, the advice was eat less, move more, not change the quality of your diet. And this is something that I've been highlighting repeatedly throughout all of this coronavirus epidemic and all the people that I've had on for the last three to four months is really drawing a line in the sand between this, this. Ideology of Western medicine, and this this in what I would consider to be pretty, um, pretty damaging ideology that's even present in the quote nutrition community and some of the people who are uh, advocating for if it fits your macros or all foods fit, saying that it's okay to eat pop tarts as it's okay to eat pizza, just don't just don't exceed your calories. And I think that it's it's really important that we delineate here that the quality of food probably matters massively. And it's like, uh, like these grain-based carbohydrates, these highly processed carbohydrates, these highly processed foods in general, we just need to take a stand and, and people need to realize like these are not healthy for humans and anyone who's telling us they are is probably not standing on substantiated research. And is, it's very, it's an insidious and I believe very damaging ideology that led you to that 59-year-old Al
1: who had a stroke First of all, it's malpractice, in in my opinion, for a medical professional who should know if you're treating the health of the body, you should know what our DNA blueprint literally rejects. You should know that. And certainly it 's the grains with the gluten and it 's the sugars and it 's the processed seed oils. There is no question about it and Let me tell you about an interesting sidelight here. I go to the cancer clinic every month, like I said. I am doing these immunotherapy infusions like I am doing, and um, it is an element that obviously is helping and i 'll elaborate that on uh, on that in a minute. but I have been in the infusion clinic this is where cancer patients are getting injected or infused with their chemotherapy drugs. They have serious cancer, like I, and, and they're on the verge of death. And there are several nurses that have been circulating chocolate chip cookies. What, what, what? This disconnect makes no sense to me. When I was diagnosed at the clinic, and it 's a very well respected clinic. I had to go to the dietitian before even beginning treatment so that I understood the importance of nutrition. I thought that was great. I wanted to hear what you had to say anyhow. So I am not the kind of person that just sits there and listens. I kind of speak out and make an ass of myself when I think I need to, and so this nutritionist is telling me. That the most important thing is not to lose weight; just eat anything that you like. And I said, "Well, wait a minute. What? What, what are we talking about?" She said, "Just you need the calories, so you don't lose weight." And I said, "So you mean you know pizza every now and then, or or bread and sandwiches?" She said, yeah, none of none of that is wrong. And I said, "Wait a minute. You don't know who I am or what I do, but I have." some knowledge of the gut microbiome and nutrition and overall health. Just look at me. And I mean, I'm not like you, but at least I am not fat or obese and I am able to walk straight and I don't have a pallor on my face. And, and I'm telling her you're wrong. She doesn't like me and I don't like her. And I, and I walk out and that's fine. But this is the kind of, um, knowledge that cancer patients are getting, I mean, you know, cancer patients, are scared to death. They have a diagnosis that is life-threatening. They don't know who to go to. This guy in the white jacket has told them that you have to have this, this chemical poured into your body. If you do a little research, it's so archaic that maybe they invented it when there were cave people. And the, you're going to destroy your entire immune system and maybe you will artificially recreate it for you and they're giving you misinformation to try to save your life. I, it's just mind-boggling.
0: It's mind boggling. And one of the things that I appreciate most about the conversations that you and I have had offline, and where we're going to go in this podcast is really beginning to think about cancer from a different perspective. I'm not an oncologist. You're not an oncologist. You're a cancer patient. Uh, We all have cancer cells that arise in our bodies every day. But I think that like everything else that I try to do, it's important to think outside the box. And so that eventually in this podcast, I definitely want to talk about these two realms of thinking about cancer from a different perspective. And one of them is a metabolic theory of cancer, which is something that's been promulgated by Thomas Seyfried, and I've had Dom Diagostino on the show, and and I want to talk about that. But you've also highlighted something that I don't think anyone is really talking about right now, which is a, a gastrointestinal theory of cancer or a microbiota Theory of cancer, and we're going to get there. But I think this is where potentially this is one of the other benefits, or of an animal-based diet, or just an intentional diet beyond a paleo diet or a paleolithic diet. I think we need to be thinking about metabolic health in terms of insulin resistance, and as you and I have talked about, gastrointestinal, you know, adequacy, gastrointestinal, the absence or the correction of leaky gut gastrointestinal hyperpermeability as a central theme of treating cancer and so that is somewhere that we're going to go in this podcast that's foreshadowing for all of you guys listening but before we get there i also want to highlight as you said earlier that in your career as a periodontist as a as a as a as a, as a dental practitioner treating people's mouths you saw massive improvements in the periodontal health the health of the gums and the teeth With just changing them from a standard American diet to a Paleolithic diet. I mean, that to me is a point that cannot be overstated that the foods we eat affect the gum health. And how many people have I heard from? The answer is hundreds at this point who say that when they go to an animal based diet or they cut out the majority of plants or they go to a primal type of eating, their gum health gets much better. Their gums stop bleeding, the recession of the gums decreases or reverses and as we said you and I agree that this is the mouth is such a mirror such a an epitome or a window into the health of the whole body so just talk about that briefly but you know what you saw in your practice with people's mouths with these dietary changes which are not talked about in mainstream dentistry
1: it, you're correct and it, what's interesting is I can talk anecdotally and and your listeners may believe what I say or not believe what I say. There's no control group. How can you say that? You know, you're, you have bias. You're the periodontist looking at these males. Okay. I get that. But there are two, maybe three, but definitely two recent human studies that have shown that if you take a diet of processed foods and change it to a healthy diet with unprocessed foods and not the grains and not the added sugars and not the um, processed seed oils. If you do that in a control setting, so you have a control group and an experimental group and you're telling each group to do a different thing, but they all have active gum disease to start with and then you evaluate them four weeks later, They have seen, without brushing or flossing, by the way, for four weeks, no cleaning of their mouth. No cleaning of the mouth. No cleaning. This is a very fascinating study. Two studies. So they're doing a culture of the bacteria in the mouth on the tongue, around the gum tissues, basically called dental plaque. And they're measuring for bleeding in the gum, which is a sign of active gum disease, and the depth of the spacing between the gum and the tooth and the base of the bone. And that's another sign of periodontal disease. So they're making these measurements. Now, the control group is eating their junky food for another four weeks. The experimental group is eating this healthier diet without, carb, I mean, without grains, without sugar, without processed seed oils, and they are not cleaning their mouth. They're allowing the bacteria to accumulate in four weeks. Now listen to this, this is very exciting, because it approves a point that most dentists even call themselves biological dentists don't understand. So at the end of four weeks, there are globs of plaque in the mouth, right? You can do it in your own mouth. You're eating a carnivore diet, After four weeks, if you don't brush and floss, you're going to get film that gets thicker around the the gum of the teeth. So this dental plaque is now recultured. The pocket depths are measured. The bleeding on probing is measured. Lo and behold, to to the surprise of no one, lots and lots of dental plaque. But when they do cultures, all the bacteria, which is about 700 species, are in a state of homeostasis. There are potentially pathogenic bacteria, but they're not overgrowing. And the proof of the pudding is there's no bleeding on probing anymore, although there was in the the experimental group. There's no bleeding on probing. The pocket depths are are more shallow, but the control group that continued to eat the junk had more bleeding and deeper pockets after four weeks with no cleaning of their mouth. Now, let me tell you, and this is going to be a shock to you, I'm sure, because you hear what's going on in the dental community. Dental plaque is healthy until it's not. So here's the point. The biofilm around the teeth at the gum line is a healthy, natural biofilm. How do I know that? Well, I'm just telling you the studies that were done. But we can look back prehistoric times, look at dental jaw remains from 10,000 to 20,000 years ago, you will see calculus, um, mineralization around the tooth at the bone level of these jaws. But if you look carefully, very little damage in the bone, so there's no periodontal or periodontitis, very little tooth decay. Now, there may be some, but very little. The prevalence of, of Gum infection today is 93% of the US population. The the prevalence of active periodontitis, which is this infection going into the jawbone, is forty-seven percent. This is an epidemic, but we have this disease. And and, and the plaque itself creates three very important uh, functions as it sits around the tooth. Number one, it's the gatekeeper for mineralization. So when you eat foods and the minerals get into your blood system, a lot of that gets deposited in your salivary glands. And as you salivate, as you drool in your mouth, all these minerals saturate the tooth surface. You don't get mineralization from toothpaste or a supplement that you swallow or you rinse with. That's a misnomer and that's a joke. I can't believe that people are promoting. The mineralization comes from the constant flow of saliva, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And these minerals get sucked up into the dental plaque and the plaque kind of acts as a gatekeeper to allow the minerals to penetrate the root, 24 hours a day, seven days a week to remineralize it as necessary. The other thing is dental plaque has a variety of chemical buffers, natural buffers in the body that actually maintain a pH, an acid level that's normal, 5.5 or higher, meaning it's not that acid to create decay. Decay only forms when there is a pH less than 5.5 for an extended period of time. And then the third thing that the dental plaque does, which is amazing. uh, I wish I could have told you that I created this, but I didn't. But it's amazing that the bacteria that is in a state of homeostasis, some of which are potentially pathogenic, some of which are not, but are creating hydrogen peroxide. And this form of hydrogen peroxide is destructive to other potentially invading pathogens inside your mouth but not in the in the plaque so they try to get into the plaque and you, the the hydrogen peroxide kills it automatically so if you strip away this dental plaque you are exposing tissues, that could become very damaged. Now, when you're brushing and flossing, if you have a healthy mouth and you remove some dental plaque, you're not going to remove what's called the dental pellicle, which is the the stickiest form of the dental plaque, and it reforms every 24 hours anyhow. So it's not a big deal. But there are dentists, and I would say the majority of dentists, and certainly there are hygienists, that that use what's called disclosing solutions, especially for kids. This is a vegetable red dye that, that you swish in your mouth, and it stains the dental plaque bright red. And the idea is you scrub that until it's gone. And they teach to remove all the dental plaque. Totally incorrect. Then they also teach if it, it since you're not going to clean your mouth that aggressively all the time, I want you to suck on these tablets or eat this food or whatever to rem- prevent this dental plaque from forming, like food that has xylitol, which is an artificial sweetener. It's terrible anyhow for your gut. But in addition to that, it prevents plaque from forming. So you're stripping away the protective biofilm that your body was designed to protect itself. And you are... Creating a, a a an unhealthy microbiome. Even if you didn't get periodontal disease or tooth decay because you sterilized your mouth, you have no idea all the complications in the rest of your body that you're creating. It's like it's like you have some ants in the house so to take care of the ants. You're going to burn down the house. That's not the way to do it. That is, and it's such all related to the gut. So the gut, it everything starts in the gut. Everything, yeah. starts in the gut. everything yeah. starts in the gut.
0: Well, so let me. It sounds like everything starts in the mouth and then,
1: well, and then, yes, and then the mouth is, is
0: related a, to the gut. But we'll get to the gut
1: too. Okay, well let me let me make this point because that is another point that may be misinterpreted. Yes, everything starts in the mouth, but so the mouth is the mirror and it looks at uh, what's going on. And it, if there is inflammation and periodontal disease, it will spread into the blood system and it spreads into the lymph system and it literally travels the myelin sheath of nerves, which mo- most people b- don't understand, that gets un- into other parts of the body. And some of the vir- very virulent bacteria, like P. Ging- G- P. gingivalis, Porphyromonas gingivalis, one of the very active. Um, bacterium that that imparts this periodontitis infection, literally can get into red blood cells, become dormant, then the red blood cells can travel to other parts of the body, and then all of a sudden they can become expressed and, and regenerate themselves to create infections in other parts of the body without going through the mouth. One of the things that is interesting is that to get this dysbiosis in the mouth, you must have some kind of dysbiosis in the gut and a change in the immune system because the immune system is what keeps the bacteria in balance in the mouth. So the immune system is kind of over can't really work well. And then there are holes in the gut, basically called uh, colloquially uh, a leaky gut, and junk gets into the bloodstream that should never be there, especially especially lipopolysaccharides, which is the dying Uh, the the cell walls of dying or dead, uh, gram-negative bacteria, extremely, extremely um, uh, toxic to the body. And that actually travels to all mucous membranes, including the mouth, and it sets up this infection. So it starts in the gut. Now, once it's in the mouth, you have to treat the mouth, but you also have to treat the gut. Some people think, and there are studies that prove this incorrectly, and I'll tell you why it's incorrect. I know you delve into studies really well, so this is very important and interesting. I know a study that was just published a couple months ago wanted to prove that P. gingivalis in the mouth, when you swallow it, will create infection in the gut. Interestingly, they don't do it in humans. They did it in rats and mice. And yes, they put P. gingivalis in the mouths of of mice and rats. They swallowed it and they got dysbiosis in the gut. They didn't realize or they didn't tell the breeders that the gut, uh, the stomach in mice have a pH of around 3.7 to 4.7. And the stomach acid in the human is 1.1 to 1.3. P. gingivalis is killed in the stomach acid in the humans. It's not killed in the stomach acid of rats. Therefore, it goes into the gut. Of course, P. gingivalis is not normal for a a rat or a mouse to have anyhow. So the point is the mouth is not an island unto itself, but the infection didn't start in the mouth. But once the infection is there, it goes back and forth. And just to kill the bacteria in the mouth, in uh, indiscriminately is not the answer and not treating the, the gut is only causing more problems later on.
0: <sighs> so, you know, in, in other talks that I've given, I joked about how you you can't be an endocrinologist. You can't be a rheumatologist. You can't be a psychiatrist because for any of those, you have to be a psycho endocrinologist, you know, And and basically, the conclusion that I've come to is that all physicians of all types, including dentists, really just have to be inflammologists. You have to look at where the inflammation is coming from and look at the immune system. And as you're so eloquently describing, a lot of the problems in the mouth begin in the gut. And so why do the things begin in the gut? Well, as you're saying, because we are eating foods that damage the lining of the gut, which affect the immune system, which cause endotoxemia the movement of lipopolysaccharide, these fragments of gram-negative cell walls into the body, creating immunologic compromise. And thus the process begins. And this is one of the reasons that I am so interested in the carnivore diet. And I think we share an interest in this because of the absence of plant molecules, lectins, oxalates, salicylates, on and on and on, other phytoalexins from plant foods that could damage the lining of the gut or be seen as invaders and trigger an immunologic reaction in the gut, lectins, et cetera. This mechanism has been well-documented with gluten and alcohol, where that when you pass the gluten fragment or fragments fragments of, of gluten into the gut, they have a bit of molecular mimicry and they trigger an immunologic reaction in the gut. You get zonulin released at the level of the gut epithelium, and you get what's called leaky gut. And I think that, that you're right, that, that the majority of human chronic disease has to do with triggering this opening of the gut junctions, this leaky gut. And we know many foods do this. And there's a whole chapter in my book, The Carnivore Code, about how lectins do this, how oxalates might do this, how many foods might do this, how many plant foods might do this. And so I think some of your, from our previous discussions, it sounds like a lot of your interest in an animal-based diet or a carnivore diet is stemming from a gut health perspective, and we'll get into all that soon. But I love that you highlighted this idea about plaque. This is so counterintuitive, and not necessarily counterintuitive. It's actually very intuitive, but it's counterculture and it challenges the status quo. I have a really good friend who uh, used to be deeply involved in a dental clinic, and he says our ancestors didn't brush, didn't floss, and didn't get cavities, and I've always wondered the same thing, Al, which is why I've always so appreciated our conversations. What is, what kind of mouths is Weston Price? And I didn't train as a dentist, so I have to defer to your expertise, but what kind of mouths is Weston Price looking in, in the West Indies or Polynesia or in Africa? And, and what is he seeing? I mean, how are people brushing their teeth like we all know they have to, you know, 70, 100 years ago in, in the Polynesian atolls? And as you're saying, they're not they 're not brushing their teeth and, correct and the plaque the plaque is healthy as long as the balance of bacteria is there and this is I think what people misunderstand about the gastrointestinal microbiome, and as you 're suggesting, this is what people misunderstand about the oral microbiome. Most of my listeners will know that the microbiome is not just in your gut it 's on your skin it 's in your mouth it 's in your nose it 's in your throat it's in the vagina, it's in the anus, it's everywhere. We have a microbiome everywhere and they're all interconnected webs of different bacteria. And how cool is it that this, oro, this oral microbiome really doesn't need to be brushed or flossed all the time. And that plaque can exist, as you're saying, in a healthy way. That flies in the face of modern convention, which just wants to just like everything else. I mean, it's the paradigm is exactly the same here. We want to use hand sterilizer and antibacterial soaps with xenoestrogens and face washes and face creams with benzoyl peroxide. We're trying to kill bacteria everywhere. And we are trying to nuclear kill bacteria in our mouths. Even
1: more so today with the COVID stuff going on. That scares me because everybody is using these hand sanitizers. All of a sudden, your hands are going to get raw and red, just like dentists and physicians that that were washing with these um, chlorhexidine rinses every time they saw a patient, and all of a sudden, their skin breaks out, and and it's pretty unhealthy and ugly looking. It, It is a huge problem.
0: And I talked about that in the podcast. I did it with Ben Lynch, concerns about overuse of hand sanitizer, both because of xenoestrogens, parabens, and phthalates in those chemicals, things like triclosan and dial soap, and also because of disruption of the microbiome on our hands. Ben made this amazing point that if you decrease the diversity of the oropharyngeal, the nasopharyngeal microbiome, the collection of organisms in the nose and the throat we're more susceptible to a flu virus that enters there, and so this isn't to say that that a virus can't be transmitted if you shake someone's hand. But let's just let's weigh pros versus cons here, and 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 how do we how do we really navigate this? And are people going to go overboard with hyper sanitization? On a previous phone call that we had, you mentioned something to me that has stuck with me. I think that mouthwash must be a multi. Hundred million dollar industry at this point because it just it feels like it's so clean. Right. It's just like if you if you wanted to nuke your mouth, what is better than mouthwash? But tell me what you shared about mouthwash uh, so a few this months is very, ago because this is
1: very interesting. Because yeah. again, you go to the dental office; they are either selling mouthwashes that are antimicrobial or they're recommending a variety of brands that are over-the-counter, or even prescription mouthwashes. They even use um, therapeutic types of antimicrobials in trays and things for your mouth. So here's a very, very interesting subject, not just the con- conversation that we had that um, th- that you're destroying the microbiome in your mouth. Here's a very specific situation. So when you use an m- antimicrobial, my- antimicrobial mouthwash, you're going to kill a lot of bacteria, of course, and one of the bacteria groups that you're going to kill are the gram-negative bacteria on the top of your tongue. And it's going to be great. It's going to taste good. You're going to not have any bad breath for maybe another hour um makes maybe makes you feel better and or a person feel better and and you do that on a daily basis of course maybe two or three times a day because that's the way you should do it and that's the way your dentist told you to do it and everybody else that's in the marketing world tells you to buy their products so that you can do it interestingly enough there was a paper that was published i would say a couple years ago i can't remember exactly what and it was by some cardiologists literally talking to other cardiologists and they said if you, are, you have your patients using an antimicrobial mouthwash every day, uh, you might want to stop. And here's the reason why. If you give these patients high blood pressure medication and you're not getting the results that you want, there is a biological process that if your patients are using an antimicrobial mouthwash every day they are damaging or disturbing that pathway. And the pathway is this. When you eat foods that have natural nitrates in them, your body absorbs the nitrates, mainly in the duodenum, and literally 60 70% of these nitrates get into your salivary glands. Um, and the salivary glands, obviously, are pouring saliva out of your mouth or into your mouth constantly. And these biologically active nitrates get into your mouth. Now, the nitrates react with the gram-negative bacteria on the top of your tongue, creating a little chemical reaction, so it reduces it from nitrate to nitrite, and then you swallow the nitrites, not consciously, you just swallow in a regular and it gets into your gut and several things happen. But the majority of what happens with the nitrites that get into your gut is it becomes nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is critical for cardiovascular health. It's actually important for gum health in your mouth, but it also reduces naturally your blood pressure. So if you are killing the gram-negative bacteria in your mouth, you are stopping the natural pathway from nitrate to nitrite to nitrite oxide. And if you're on blood pressure medication and you're not getting the nitric oxide that is naturally being produced, then your blood pressure will go up. And that's why the cardiologists warn their patients or other cardiologists to make sure their patients that are on blood pressure medication are definitely not using an antimicrobial mouthwash every day. Now, I don't argue that antimicrobial mouthwashes are necessary therapeutically for maybe a week to 10 days, but you have to be keen and understand that you must repopulate that wonderful garden of bacteria in your mouth and the garden of bacteria in your gut. And to use a lozenge probiotic in your mouth that you think is going to reestablish the bacteria in your mouth, that doesn't work. The best way and the only way To regerminate good bacteria is to use probiotics that are spore-based, because the only probiotics that literally can survive stomach acid are the spore-based probiotics. These are a variety of bacillus spores, and the others, like lactobacillus and bifidobacterium, uh, probiotics which are great they make lots of metabolites that get into your gut and do a lot of good things but those lactobacilli bacteria and bifidobacteria are destroyed in the stomach acid so they cannot regenerate in the gut to get new re- new germination of bacteria you need spore based probiotics and those spore based probiotics also um, stimulate the rest of the commensal bacteria to increase in numbers and quantity and quality, and and that's the way to regenerate that gut. And when you regenerate the gut, you will improve the mouth.
0: And I think that that point again cannot be overstated. That isn't there some interesting parallelism here? Most people are now aware that we probably shouldn't be bombing our guts with antibiotics, and yet they will easily put mouthwash and just you know, destroy all the microbiome in their mouth, which is a problem. And I think that most people do it because they have bad breath, but bad breath doesn't necessarily arise from a problem in your mouth. It's usually arising from a problem in your microbiome. And I can tell, I mean, if I meet someone with bad breath, it's an immediate indication that they have dysbiosis, that they have a loss of diversity in the gut. And as you're saying, that is going to contribute to a loss of diversity in the oral microbiome. These are intimately connected. And we're going to get into spore-based probiotics and the use of them. A little bit later on in this podcast, there's so much to discuss. But I, I love bringing it back to these kind of these ancestral ideas, these predecessor ideas, and thinking how did our ancestors do this? How did our ancestors do this? And I think that the answer to that question, from my perspective, is that our ancestors really didn't get into the problem in the first place because they weren't eating these processed foods. And I, I think that most of these spore-based probiotics exist naturally in nature and and yes of course
1: they're in the the dirt and that's what
0: that's that's what we would have been exposed to and so there's always this constant turnover of the microbiome in our guts there's a constant turnover of the microbiome in our mouths and i think that this goes back to the idea of sanitization and over cleanliness if we're not you know when you're out camping i hope most of the people listening to this have been camping in the last year Maybe not with coronavirus and the closing of the national parks. And it's so, this is one of the reasons that it's so sad to me that nature has been closed with coronavirus because yet another reason that humans need to be in nature is to seed the microbiome. In addition to everything else that I've talked about with the sun and, you know, just being in nature from a parasympathetic perspective and sharing it with humans, we need to be in nature to seed the microbiome. And if we lose wilderness places, we are losing contact with spore-based probiotics that occur naturally in nature. If you're not touching a dog or touching the dirt or touching the ground or touching the earth or swimming in a natural stream or river that is not polluted or filled with fertilizer or glyphosate or a pesticide, you are missing the natural source of these spore-based probiotics that humans have probably been exposed to for millions of years is it any wonder that our microbiomes are so destroyed right now? We can try and rehabilitate them with supplemental probiotics, like you're saying, these bacillus. And my mind always goes to, how would I have gotten this naturally? And what's the easiest way to do this? So we'll get into all of that as well. But that's kind of just, that's my take on that. Anything you want to add to that before we move on?
1: No, you're absolutely correct. I do want to make one other comment. And we're talking about um, incorrect or unhealthy food choices creating lots of problems in the gut. That's true, but that's not the only factor that causes gut dysbiosis. We need to make a point of that because we have a lifestyle, unfortunately, that is generating the potential for damage our mi- for the damage of our microbiome everywhere in our body, especially in the gut. And, you know, we have 38 trillion microbes in our body and we're only 30 trillion human. We are more microbial than human cells. And this actually, if, if we were to sterilize our body, we would die. So other things like glyphosate, you mentioned, these are are chemicals that are in the ground, but people are using Roundup just on their yards, not realizing that it's getting into their system. And it has been proven that it causes cancer. As a matter of fact, there are class action suits right now because of glyphosate use. Um, Pesticides, emulsifiers, dirty electromagnetic fields, excess Um, exercise, not enough exercise. Uh, Stress, emotional stress. You can have a healthy gut microbiome and you can have emotional stress that destroys the gut microbiome or or just the epithelial barrier of the gut. There are a lot of factors that need to be in place. If you ate a beautiful carnivore diet, but you were under stress all the time, you would not have, have a healthy body. And you could have lots of gum disease with a totally perfect diet. So there are other factors, but without a doubt, one, one of the things you have control over is the food you put in your mouth, and certainly that should be the start of a um, happier day for you.
0: And I want to show these pictures of this case that you shared with me of this patient of yours who was under extreme stress and had severe gum disease and then was able to correct the stress and saw it resolve, and, and you can tell me the story, but I'm also reminded of a book that I'm reading right now which is Civilized to Death by Chris Ryan, Um, I'm hoping to get Chris uh, Ryan on the show soon. But one of the things that Chris Ryan talks about is the perhaps false assumption, the false premise that our our current progress away from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle is really a good thing or is leading to a better quality of life for humans. And I'll I'll leave the the depth, the in-depth conversation about that to hopefully one that I'll have with Chris on the show soon. But if you if you read my book, if you read The Carnivore Code, if you read Chris's work, if you read the work of Jared Diamond, if you talk to anthropologists, and you look at the work, or at least the historical writings of explorers from the 15th and 16th and 17th century, what you hear is that indigenous people were some of the happiest people that they've ever encountered. And I mean, there's an account from Columbus in Chris's book in which he says that the Taino Indians, the T-A-I-N-O Indians, were the most you know, the, the the kindest and most um, happy and generous people that he's ever met in his whole life. And he, the, in a, as Chris Ryan says, in a chilling twist of fate, the next sentence that Columbus writes in his personal journal is that they would be very easily dis- easily subdued and make amazing slaves. But his, <laughs> which is, terrible. you know, it's, it's it's just sinister foreshadowing of what happened with colonialism in this country. But the point that is made over and over is that indigenous hunter-gatherers are very stress-free. They're living a life in which they have everything they need or the majority of what they need provided for them. They can deal with all of the environmental changes, and they don't have stress like we have stress. I've had so many conversations with friends over the years where they, where we lament the constant, incessant, low-level stress that we all experience. I experience it. I'm trying to get better at it. But it's totally true, Al, and I, I love your point here, that if we really take a strong or a keen look at this think about the way that you feel when you've been on a camping trip for 3 days and you're out in the woods and really not checking your cell phone and you're in the natural world it's a very different sympathetic parasympathetic balance than it is in the natural in, in the normal mainstream society the concrete world dealing with cars and social media and it's it's an it's a very difficult trap to escape so tell us the story of of this patient right here i'll share the the pictures
1: Well, just share the first picture, which is, um, yeah. So that picture, if you look at it, it looks strange because you're seeing lots of teeth and gums. It's not a natural smile. The way these pictures are taken are little plastic uh, contraptions that pull the cheek aside so all the teeth and gum tissues are visible. And if you're looking at it, like I'm looking at it right now, you see the teeth, but you see lots of red stuff underneath of all that that Dr. Saladino is pointing out. And, and those are areas of hyperplasia, which is overgrowth of gum tissue, and severe inflammation. But interestingly enough, that young lady didn't have dental plaque, didn't have the, the etiology of what would have caused this gum disease. And I wasn't seeing this patient, but my uh, the periodontist I was working with at saw this patient. And uh, he had her go to her medical doctor to do a a series of blood work because this kind of uh, inflammation is also reminiscent of what leukemia could look like in the mouth and also what's called dilantin hyperplasia, which is an overgrowth and inflammation of the gum tissues from a drug called dilantin that's used for epilepsy. And so Uh, we needed to make sure, he needed to make sure that none of these other systemic uh, idiosyncrasies were a problem. And she came back with basically a healthy medical report, Um, but she started to confide in this periodontist that I was working with, and, and she told him that she was working, this is in Charleston, South Carolina, that she was working for an employer who was verbally and sexually abusing her over a period of a long time. Now she had no ties in the city. She had no family in the city and this periodontist convinced her to literally quit the job and If she couldn't find a job she actually moved away from the city found an excellent job and she disappeared from the practice for four months Then she came back and when she came back She uh, just wanted to, to show this other periodontist how her mouth was doing She had no dental treatment and no medical treatment and mind you there were no signs of the etiology of gum disease uh, in her mouth. So when she came back, all of the lesions were gone. If you can show that picture. Mm -hmm. So now this is the second picture, and if you can see that, if you look, all this gum tissue is beautiful and pink, and nothing was done other than the complete elimination of the emotional stress. Now, you know, a lot of people talk about stress and it's not healthy, but they don't really know that it's not healthy. But I can tell you, there are other studies that have shown that emotional stress will damage the epithelial, bar- epithelial barrier of the gut. Even if the gut microbiome is healthy, there is Um, there are dying gram-negative cells in in the gut lumen. Eventually, they go through the anus and it, it gets expressed out of your body and everything is cool. But if you have a leaky gut because of the damage from the epithelial barrier, these LPS fragments, the lipopolysaccharide that is highly toxic, will leak into the bloodstream, creating metabolic endotoxemia, creating inflammation, creating problems throughout the body, and where your genetic makeup is a little weaker, it may respond. And in her mouth, her genetic predisposition was that this severe toxic reaction occurred in the gum tissue in her mouth. But once, no changes in her gut other than changes in the stress. Now, stress elicits a, a host of different biologically active chemicals that are going, coursing through the body, cortisol and a bunch of other stuff that is damaging or opening the the, the, um, uh, epithelial, epithelial barrier so that fluids and glucose can get out of it and into the bloodstream for a variety of reasons. So basically, all of that healed itself because she was not under stress. And another very important comment that actually has to do with some of the studies I showed that we talked about that only in four weeks of a change in diet, you get a healthier mouth. What is very unique about this epithelial barrier is, is it, it is the most reparative tissue in the body. So every cell, it's only one cell layer thick, but every cell replaces itself within five to seven days. So if you don't irritate this epithelial barrier, then it will heal itself. If you have a junky diet today, you're eating pizza, you're drinking beer, you're doing all the crazy stuff, and you probably are going to have diarrhea and vomit and whatever else. But if you do that, but you stop, next seven days go by and you're eating a healthy carnivore diet again, you're going to have a new gut lining. And whatever acute... Um, immune responses occurred, healed itself, because acute inflammation is normal, and you want that, and it's not become chronic, and the gut microbiome becomes healthier, and the epithelial barrier replaces itself, and all those um, uh, tight junctions are intact again. The problem is, in our society, is we constantly irritate. It's like a splinter in your finger. You can do a million things to get your body healthy, but you got to remove the splinter that Puncture wound will never heal. But if you take the splinter and keep stabbing it in your finger in the same puncture hole, it will never heal. No matter all if all the cells are trying to heal, it won't heal. And the same thing is with the gut. You put junk in the gut every day, three days, uh, three times a day, five times a day. Some people eat that many times a day, or at least every two or three days. You're constantly creating the chronic irritant that will not allow the new body of cells to take over. I think that's very important to understand. That's why you can heal so fast if you change your gut and all the other irritants in your body.
0: And you maintain it for a specific amount maintain, of time. So in right, my book, right, The Carnivore right. Code, there are two things that you mentioned that I talked about. One is the Plinko hypothesis of chronic disease. If people haven't read my book, there's a there's a game on The Price is Right where they take a disc and the disc slides down through a, on a board with a series of pins and it's the idea that if you introduce inflammation or gastrointestinal hyperpermeability, in different individuals that inflammation is going to manifest differently. So in this, in this young woman who was a victim of sexual and emotional abuse, that inflammation manifested as her weak spot, which happened to be uh, the, gum, uh, the gum permeability, the gum inflammation, the periodontal disease. But as I say in the book, inflammation could manifest differently in different people. And that's why some people get rheumatoid arthritis, some people get inflammatory bowel disease, some people get rosacea, eczema, I had eczema, and asthma, etc. And the second point that I want to um, highlight that you just mentioned um, was the one about cheat days. And people always say, and this is why I don't like cheat days because if you introduce pizza every five days or seven days, you're constantly inflaming the gut. And anyone who has celiac disease or documented gluten hypersensitivity will know that you cannot eat gluten once a week because the gut takes seven days to repair itself and that our immune system has a memory that's even longer than that. So if you are sensitive to a food, you can't eat that food once a week you have to go at least 30 days, probably two to three months without that food to really allow the immune system to calm down, which is my problem with cheat days. And again, you guys, if you haven't checked out my book, The Carnivore Code, that's the first edition. The second edition is now pre-orderable, thecarnivorecodebook.com. It'll be out August 4th. I talk about all of that in there. But the idea is that if you are really trying to fix gum disease, periodontal disease, autoimmune disease of any type, You can't eat pizza once a week, a cheat day won't work. A cheat day might work for The Rock because he's only really worried about his physique. If The Rock doesn't have autoimmune disease, we're not dealing with the same process. Cheat days don't work for people with autoimmune inflammatory disease. The other thing I'm remembering now that I wanna highlight so I don't forget it, is the xylitol gum. Rhonda Patrick was recently on Joe Rogan and she admits she had cavities. To me, that immediately means, Rhonda Patrick, your diet stinks. If you're getting cavities, Rhonda Patrick, you are missing fat soluble nutrients and you need to come talk to me. I'll be here for you, Rhonda Patrick. You can email me. But then she says to Joe, she goes on to wax poetic about xylitol gum and how it helped heal her cavities. But I just want to contrast that with what you said about xylitol gum. These sugar alcohols are probably not very good for the gut flora. She's saying, oh, it really helped her cavities by destroying the plaque, when in fact, she's not treating the root cause. Rhonda Patrick having cavities in her mouth is a clear indication that her gut is, is disordered, that she has a, probably a fat-soluble nutrient deficiency, and she has dysbiosis in the mouth. The way to treat that is not to bomb the mouth or to disrupt the oral microbiome. It's to fix what's going on in your diet. So I just saw that. I'm not, I don't mean to throw Rhonda Patrick under the bus. Believe me, if I could get Rhonda Patrick on the show to debate me directly, I would love to do that. If she wants to comment on this, she's welcome to. But I just want to highlight, because it's such a big platform that she's talking about xylitol gum, and I fear that now thousands of people more now are chewing xylitol gum and potentially messing things up for themselves. It's not not the answer.
1: You have just earned your DDS. I will (laughs) get it in the mail to you, and, and that is phenomenal. And I want to take it one step further, and that is the xylitol gum is killing and destroying the pellicle. But the whole concept is you can't get decay unless you're eating sugar because you can't, the, the, the bacteria will not create enough acid unless it's feeding of, uh, with uh, sugar in, in your mouth. And there are studies that prove that all the time. But the sad thing in, it, the, the sad thing in dentistry is, and you're going to get a lot of phone calls about this, by the way. I won't because they don't know my number, but I know they're going to know how to get you. You're going to find that a lot of dentists and hygienists are going to scream and yell. So and the sad thing is a lot of dental offices use fluoride in yes. the mouth. And fluoride is every, in everywhere. And, and everybody says, and there are lots of studies to prove that's going to decrease decay. Yeah, it does. You also could take rustoleum and paint it on a, a steel pipe with, with rust and it looks good, but you still have rust underneath. It, it's not really good. And as soon as it peels off, everything breaks down fluoride is nothing other than a barrier the problem is not a lack of fluoride you know you were never born with a lack of fluoride in your body you were born healthy until you weren't healthy you were born with healthy plaque until it be not became non-healthy plaque but basically a lot of companies and dentists are now thinking we need to use something that doesn't have fluoride in it okay well there are some particles Called hydroxyapatite. Hydroxyapatite is the chemical structure of enamel. And so, hydroxyapatite, um, it, the thought would be if you can get more hydroxyapatite in the tooth, you can prevent tooth decay. And if you take these and make them such small particles, like one nanometer to 100 nanometers big, now they become what's called nano. Um, hydroxyapatite, and these nano hydroxyapatite particles are being made in very nice, very expensive, very well marketed toothpaste as the solution that proves that we can get better health of the teeth without using fluoride much harder remineralization, and they say that it is perfectly biologically healthy. The only problem is, it's not. And there are studies, and there was just one, and I'm gonna write about this on Monday, Uh, that shows the biological cytotoxicity of all nanoparticles. Because nanoparticles are so small, they get into the cell membrane of every cell, destroys the membrane, destroys the DNA, destroys the possibility of uh, mitosis for the cell, does a whole host of things, creates excess uh, reactive oxygen species. And it not only damages the cell, it gets into the gut and it damages the gut microbiome, and it goes on and on fr- from there. And there are nanoparticles that we're we are using on a regular basis. I'm sure you've heard about colloidal silver. I have a significant problem with that because sil- silver uh, colloidal silver is used as a great antimicrobial, and without a doubt, it kills bacteria. Unfortunately, it's indiscriminate, so it kills everything. And this paper that was just published, I'm talking maybe two weeks ago, shows that the nanoparticles of silver actually get into the blood-brain barrier attached to one area of the brain and actually has been shown to to, uh, create memory loss, short-term memory loss. Now, wait a second. We're using these particles that are miraculous medicine um, uh, breakthroughs because some studies show that it's great because it does this, that, or the other. And they even say that it's biologically healthy, yet other studies, and there are many, that prove that they are cytotoxic to most cells in the body. That's very uh, concerning to me because um, we're always looking for a solution with a pill. Let me just tell you, you don't want tooth decay, eat a healthy diet, I recommend a carnivore or a modified carnivore diet. Clean your teeth properly, but don't go crazy about it. I can show you how to do it. It's very, very simple. Do you want to use toothpaste? Not necessary. All you have to do is brush with regular water. I would use purified, you know, filtered water. You don't have to use toothpaste. Toothpaste has no function in the body other than to foam and taste good. And all the junk that's in it is damaging. You know, activated charcoal, um, bentonite clay, these are binders. they they, they, they're binding to toxic what? They're really binding to any minerals in your mouth and get them out of your body at the moment. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, so you don't have to do these terrible things. Just eat a healthy diet and uh, not drink soda and don't eat sugar, uh, excess sugar. You can have sugar in fruit if you want, but don't eat excess sugar. And you're not, not excess, just don't eat free sugars. And you're not going to have tooth decay. You don't have to have all these chemicals.
0: And you know, I've, people lose their mind when they find out I don't use toothpaste. They say, what? How can you not? They just don't understand what it's like. There's nothing in toothpaste. Some of it has diatomaceous earth, which isn't a good thing. A lot of it has yeah. fluoride and soaps. And like, I don't need peppermint in my mouth. I just, I use water when I do brush and, you know, I,
1: I, Yeah. I a little know. bit of water is fine. Um, There are some things you could do. You could dip it in a little coconut oil. It's not carnivore, but you cut a little coconut oil as a sticky substance and then dip it in a little baking soda because the fertilizing agent kind of cleans the surface of the tooth. There's not really any biological harm to that, but you don't have to do that. Dip your toothbrush in water and that's fine. If you want to floss, you can floss between the teeth contacts to get fibers out, but you definitely don't want to floss under the gum like everybody tells you. Every hygienist will tell you to floss under the gum. If you do that, you'll cut the gum and create clefts that are very damaging. Um, the most important thing is to clean with little cleaning devices called interproximal uh, cleaners. That Basically, the best one that I've ever found. It's a brand called TP they're silicone brushes, very tiny, and they can clean excess, unhealthy dental plaque from where the gum and the root tooth uh, tooth surface meets. It will not scrub the plaque away and denude the area of the plaque, but it's perfect to clean. And it's a perfect um, biohacker for you to tell if you have gum disease. If you notice any bleeding when you clean the, with these little pit uh, tips. Um, between the gum and the teeth and you rub the gum. If you get any pink whatsoever, I assure you, you have gum infection. Change your diet.
0: Change your diet. Now, I want to highlight one piece that, that I think will be very interesting for people. I did a podcast on my continuous glucose monitor a few weeks ago, and I talked about honey and you
1: uh, know, love you, it.
0: honey, right? So, you said something earlier, and I just want to clarify this for people. If the pH of the saliva doesn't drop below 5.5 or so. We can't get tooth decay. And the way that the pH of the mouth drops below 5.5 is usually carbohydrates and sugar. But one of the things that I've noticed, and I think you also turned me on to this a few months ago, is that in research studies, when humans eat raw honey, the pH of the mouth drops temporarily and then rebounds very quickly. So you were one of the first people that turned me on to the idea that honey is not going to have the same effect as a processed sugar in the mouth, is it?
1: No, as a matter of fact, if you want a great toothpaste, brush your teeth with honey, and there are double-blind studies that show that it uh, doesn't cause tooth decay. If if anything, it's healthy and healing. And and what's interesting about honey, it's been used for thousands of years, and honey actually is a healing medicament. Um, In a dental, uh, well, there you go, I see that. this is a very good study that shows that um, you could prevent uh, gum infection, gingivitis, by just brushing with honey. Uh, honey also is good therapeutically. If you had a tooth that was removed and you had what's called a dry socket, some people that listening may know what a dry socket is, quite, quite painful. It's when the tooth is re- extracted for whatever reason and the blood clot in the area where the tooth was, doesn't do what it's supposed to do and it falls out and there's bone exposed, what happens is there's extremely severe pain for a period of a week to 10 days and the dentist would put a variety of medicaments in it to help it heal or at least get the pain to go away. You can prevent a dry socket or if you had a dry socket, heal it rather quickly if you just put a little honey into the socket. for example, another situation, and since I've had cancer, I have cancer. Uh, people that have cancer and radiation treatment and also chemotherapy treatment, one of the side effects that actually is worse than the cancer is called oral mucositis. Um, this is a damage to the mucous membranes throughout the body. So it's in your uh, gut, in your anus, and in your mouth. But it's so sore. It's raw. It's red. It's bleeding. You can't swallow. You can't eat food. It's hard to talk. It's very, very uncomfortable. And generally, physicians will prescribe some kind of um, uh, uh, steroid of some type to control the inflammation, and there are huge side effects to that. But there are double-blind studies that show if you just swish with honey several times a day and swallow it, it will heal better than the prescription drugs with no side effects. So honey is great. And when you talk about honey, there are over 180 biologically active compounds in honey. And one of the things that honey includes is that it actually has oligosaccharides, which is a prebiotic although you don 't need you don 't need fiber for your gut microbiome by the way. Uh, my, your gut microbiome literally ferments amino acids into the short chain fatty acids that it needs if there is no fiber. But the oligosaccharides are very gentle to the gut and very friendly. It doesn't cause gas and bloating and swelling of the mucosal tissue in the gut like other fibers do. And and the bacteria in the, in the gut do love it. So you're, when you're eating honey, you're feeding the good bacteria. You're doing everything. I mean, it's just a wonderful food. And it's, Animal based. It's not plant based.
0: <laughs> it's not plant based. Yeah, I've been sharing a few of the, been sharing a few studies that uh, anyone that saw the podcast last week or two weeks ago for the CGM will know the effect of Ethiopian multiflora honey on fluconazole resistant Candida species in the oral cavity of AIDS patients. There's uh, many more here that I will share real quickly. While you were just talking, I shared this one uh, about oral mucositis: a randomized controlled trial with honey. Um, I guess, why are we not surprised, right? I I love sort of this idea that, goodness gracious, this is- I'll tell you another
1: thing about, honey, I was um, somebody, I can't remember who contacted me. They had a patient. um, So it was an integrative physician. They had a patient that had a diabetic ulcer that they could not get to heal. And they- saw some of my articles about honey for whatever reason, and they asked me, what did I think about that? And I said, well, you know, honey has a variety of literature, uh, research in medical journals for healing all kinds of wounds. I would just go ahead and put honey on the wound, put a piece of gauze over it and uh, see what it does. And that actually healed this diabetic ulcer that never was healing from conventional methods.
0: Oh, this is it's well known. Yeah. yeah and is. wound care in the hospital when I was doing my residency, there's the, the hospital will sell you a, a two ounce tube of honey for $30 or $40. It's, yeah, but it's you know,
1: processed honey.
0: Medi honey. It's not, but it's processed. Yeah, it's yeah. yeah but they, they actually sell it. Meta honey. It's, yeah, it's a yeah. real thing. And it's very well known. And, and of course, they'll sell it to you for 10 times the markup because it's some sterile honey, but it's probably less good than what you'd find anywhere.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm, anywhere I'm else. So I believe it. Yeah.
0: And I just want to highlight for people that on your website, you have uh, a lot of great articles about this. Please check this out, guys. I'll link to these in the show notes, drdanenberg.com, Manuka Honey Mouth Health. Here is a, a, a great list of references for the oral benefits of honey. Uh, antibacterial effects on nearly 60 species prevents the development of resistant strains. Manuka honey, preventing the growth of biofilms, reducing the production of acids, reducing gingivitis, on and on um, with the benefits of honey. So I... I think that this is interesting to point out because a non-processed sugar or specifically honey does not have the same effects in the mouth with regard to tooth decay that a processed sugar does. And everyone gets worried about this. I'm not saying that everyone needs to include honey in their carnivore diet, but if you want to include some honey or you want to include some carbohydrates in a carnivore or an animal-based diet that are not going to have complex fibers then this is the way to do it, in my opinion. It's been great for me. As I said on the Continuous Glucose Monitor podcast, I found that it helps me manage my electrolytes better. I am not insulin resistant. As I showed in that podcast, you can see my CGM readings. My fasting glucose is very low. I'll get a little spike. It comes back to normal very quickly. I would refer everyone back to the Continuous Glucose Monitor podcast for all this information. But I really think that a raw organic honey is a a very potentially beneficial thing. Dr. Danenberg has multiple articles on his website, which go into this if you guys want to see it. We showed a few articles there. I will link to them in the show notes, and I will write about this more in the cookbook. Now, I'll just mention here briefly that when I put out the CGM episode, some people got very concerned. They said, why are you doing this? You've talked about this in so much detail in the past. It's not a good thing. And I thought, you know, we're always evolving. And I'm not saying that you need carbohydrates, but if you want to include carbohydrates, I found it to be an addition to my life. And hey, this is about as close as we're ever gonna get to an animal-based carbohydrate. We're gonna get into ketosis and the pros and cons as we wrap up the podcast here. But I think we should chase results and not ketones. We should not be dogmatic. And I encourage you all, if if the CGM podcast was confusing, re-listen to it. I'll do more on continuous glucose monitoring. I'm very excited about what NutriSense is doing. I'm gonna keep wearing continuous glucose monitors myself. And I I found this to be a very useful addition to my diet occasionally to have some carbohydrates. I think Dr. Dan Berg and I will probably talk about this in a moment. I I do have some concerns about rising levels of fasting glucose and overemphasis of what you might consider to be glucose sparing at the level of the muscles. So that's just some more comments on honey, which I think is a very valuable addition. It's a very ancestrally, anthropologically, evolutionarily, historically consistent food that our ancestors have been eating for a long time. And I don't think it's the same as high fructose corn syrup. And I think that we've demonstrated that in clear detail. So why don't we, I want to, we've already talked for a long time, and this is already an amazingly detailed podcast, I want to share a little bit more about your multiple myeloma diagnosis. I want to get into a little bit of that immunology and biology for people and educate people a little bit more about your regimen and how you think the carnivore diet is involved here and gut health. So let's just go from there. Is that
1: okay? Absolutely. Sure. Um, I need to move (laughs) my computer because I think I'm losing power. So just bear with me. I'm going to move where I have an electric outlet
0: because we're going so long.
1: Yeah, it's okay. I'm good. I don't know what my background looks like, but I'm good.
0: He's good now. Okay, cool. So one of the things, so we had talked about your diagnosis of multiple myeloma. And as my listeners will know, I love to make the podcast super geeky. And I just want to do a little bit of a side foray into the, the immunology of multiple myeloma and what this cancer means. So I've spoken about the immune system in the past. This is so relevant to all of the coronavirus conversations. I've shown graphics like this previously when I've discussed the effect of insulin and insulin resistance on the different types of immune cells. But what what we're talking about here, I want you guys to understand the type of cancer that we're dealing with here as we talk a little bit more about multiple myeloma and, and why the way that Al is doing right now is really quite remarkable. So we have the innate immune system. I've talked about this previously. This is macrophages, dendritic cells, mast cells, natural killer cells, basophils, eosinophils, neutrophils, complement proteins, right? And then we have the adaptive immune system, which is T cells and B cells. And so I want you guys to understand that multiple myeloma is a plasma cell cancer. It's a blood cancer and it is of B cells, which are essentially plasma cells. So you can see here, the blood stem cell in the bone marrow can either go to a myeloid lineage or a lymphoid lineage. The myeloid lineage goes over here to red blood cells and some of the cells of the innate immune system, the eosinophils, basophils, and neutrophils. And the lymphoid stem cells can go to B cells, T cells, and NK cells. And you see here, this B lymphocyte becomes a plasma cell. So what we're dealing with in this case is, as Dr. Danenberg said, IgA kappa light chain multiple myeloma. It's an overproduction of plasma cells. These are the cells that are reproducing at a high rate in the bone marrow, or these are the cells that are overproducing an immunoglobulin. So when we say IgA kappa light chain, we're talking about immunoglobulins. So those B cells produce immunoglobulins. And if anyone has seen a picture of an immunoglobulin, this is what it looks like. It's heavy chains and light chains, right? And these are produced by B cells. They bind to pathogens. They recognize pathogens. This is part of how our adaptive immune system works. These light chains are what we're dealing with. And you can get either a kappa light chain or a lambda light chain. But in this case, uh, Dr. Danenberg has a essentially a gene in his plasma cells on chromosome two, which overproduces this kappa light chain of the immunoglobulin from the plasma cells. So that is essentially what we are talking about when we are describing this multiple myeloma. And um, I wanted to make that clear for people so they understood because that's what's going on here. We have a a blood cell cancer from the bone marrow and the complications of this can be many. As Dr. Dannenberg said, he originally had many lytic bone lesions. One of the things that's known about multiple myeloma is that when these B plasma cells overproduce immunoglobulins, something about it also results in the formation of um, a molecule called RANKL, and RANKL, also called RANKL, um, is a ligand for osteoclasts. It activates the cells that chew up the bone, and that creates lesions in the bone. So that's essentially sort of the background on multiple myeloma. Now, you said that when when multiple myeloma is diagnosed, they get this ratio of kappa to lambda light chains. And again, this is getting kind of geeky for you guys. We're definitely getting into the varsity material here, but I think you all love this. And I think this is an interesting point to illustrate. The normal ratio of kappa to lambda light chains is two to one in the serum or one to 1.5 if we're looking at free light chains. Again, we're talking about light chains from that immunoglobulin molecule. Now, when you were first diagnosed, what was your ratio of Kappa to lambda light chains? Uh-oh.
1: I believe it was in the neighborhood of 1500 to 1.
0: Okay. So normal is 2 to 1 or 1. 1.5 to 1. And it should be um, normal is 2 to 1 or, or something thereabouts. And it was 1500 to 1. Usually, kappa outnumbers light lambda, but not by 1500 to 1. No. And so, what is that number now?
1: It is somewhere around 300 to 500 to 1.
0: So it's declining. So it's going yes. in the right direction. So Correct. this is essentially one of the ways that we can um, monitor multiple myeloma is looking at this kappa to lambda ratio. Now, if we want to get even a little more geeky, I want to talk about the two medications that you're taking from um, mainstream medicine. And again, if people heard my podcast last week with Jack Wolfson, I freely will you know, uh, state that there are many things in mainstream Western medicine that are miraculous and brilliant and can be very beneficial. We are not saying that a carnivore diet cures multiple myeloma in this podcast. We are saying that it could be helpful and we'll talk about why that might be, but I also want to highlight the other drugs that you're taking from a a medical perspective so that people understand these as well. So what are the other two drugs that you said you've been on since last winter?
1: Yes, but I want to make a comment. These are not chemotherapy drugs. Right, exactly. These are not indiscriminate like chemotherapy drugs. They're not killing everything. So these are two immunotherapy drugs that are very specific. And one is Darzelex and the other is Exjiva. Darzelex is attacking a protein on the surface of the malignant plasma cells to either make the malignant plasma cell blow up by itself, called apoptosis or stimulating the innate immune system to create a, a uh, um, um, macrophages to come to the area to gobble up that um, um, malignant plasma cell. The other, exgeva, is affecting the rank L ligand so that it is not activating the osteoclastic activity to damage the bone. So those are the two that I take. I have integrated with that with my um, unconventional protocols. And um, uh, without a doubt, conventional medicine makes a whole lot of sense when it is not indiscriminate. And, that's, and this is not that kind of uh, therapy.
0: And I love that point. So I want to talk about these conventional medicine uh, medications, and then we'll get into your unconventional cancer therapy protocol, sure. which includes uh, an animal-based diet. So uh, I find this stuff to be interesting. If you guys feel like this is too granular, send me some feedback and I won't talk about things at this level. Uh, this is uh, Dara darzalex, And this so this binds to uh, an antigen on the surface of the plasma cells known as CD38. And it induces... Um, the apoptosis, or we had this running debate in medical school, whether it's apoptosis or apoptosis, it's basically, mm-hmm. it's a monoclonal antibody. This is not an indiscriminate therapy that is inducing programmed cell death in these plasma cells or um, pulling the immune system in to do complement mediated cytotoxicity uh, with these cells. And then as you said, the other one is XGIVA, which is deno- you know, denosumab, which is a monoclonal antibody used to treat osteoporosis. osteoporosis. And again, it's a rank L inhibitor, um, which works by preventing the development of osteoclasts. And so what we're doing here or what the oncologist is doing is trying to use a directed monoclonal antibody against the plasma cells and then also trying to protect the bones because multiple myeloma seems to cause these lytic bone lesions. Now, one of the things that you mentioned to me and is a known side effect of darzalex is anemia because there are also CD38 uh, antigens on red blood cells, but you've never had this complication, have you?
1: Well, there was a time when I had this severe um, setback and broke quite a number of bones all at one time, that everything went out of whack. But no, I have no problems with... This was actually before I was doing the immunotherapy anyhow, but I have not had any problem with anemia. As a matter of fact, it's right dab in the center of the uh, normal. So my hemoglobin and hematocrit are definitely... Perfect as well as my platelet count, so and my r- red blood cell count. So, I'm not getting any pushback in any of my CBC from my therapy. I will mention something which is very interesting immunotherapy, sadly enough, y- you don't get immunotherapy unfortunately until all other therapies. Um, Don't work. And then when you get immunotherapy, they only work 20 to 30% of the time. And when I say 20 to 30%, that means you only get extended life expectancies, maybe another three or four years. And what's interesting is that there was another paper that was published in oncology journals. So it's not in the alternative world, it's actually in oncology journals, which says that, you know, guys, there is some interesting research that patients that have a healthy gut microbiome without gut dysbiosis get significantly improved results of their immunotherapy. And the ones that have gut dysbiosis are the ones that are having results of only zero to 20%. 20 or 30 percent. There is a paper that talks about Darzelex, which is what I'm on, and it shows that only one percent of everybody that's on Darzelex eventually becomes cancer free. Now, they extend life maybe three or four years, but only one percent is cancer free. I'm not sure how long it has to be before that. I don't know how long the research was done, but that is a fact. I believe. I think I have a very strong immune system based on the fact that I shouldn't. I have a very strong immune system. I can tell you a story in a minute about how I can prove that. But I believe what I am doing unconventionally has really improved my immune system. And if nothing else, I know the immunotherapies are working. If nothing else, it is enhancing the potential for this immunotherapy to make me the 1%.
0: And I love that. And I want to get into all that in a moment. I just want to highlight for the listener at this point that certainly anyone, you know, with us in the podcast right now will be hearing in the back of their head. And this is one of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast, the mainstream media narrative, which is that you better not eat red meat if you have cancer because it's going to kill you. And that's one of the main reasons that I wanted to do this podcast to show that that is a very myopic perspective. And there are many benefits, in my opinion, to eating red meat during a uh, cancer uh, journey and as i've talked about with james clement in the past and i've done multiple podcasts on mtor i don't know if we're really going to get in, into mtor today but i think that these concerns that red meat is going to overstimulate mtor are overplayed they're myopic if people want to hear the podcast that it with james clement it's on my show from the past i've talked about this multiple times i also talked about this with um, david sinclair when i had him on the podcast but uh, these, the recommendations, I mean, you heard it from Dr. Al, the dietician said, eat whatever you want, just keep your weight on. But I bet if you'd said, what if I just eat hamburgers all day? <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure she would have said, don't eat that. You can eat pizza all day, but don't eat hamburgers all day because that's surely going to, to make your cancer worse. But your cancer doesn't seem to be getting worse. It seems to No, be it's really only good. getting
1: better. And- uh, first of all, it's not your opinion. It actually is science. Red meat is healthy, but it has to be sourced correctly. And right. it's not just the meat, as you know. It's not the muscle meat. It's the fat. It's the organs. It's the collagenous material. It's all that stuff, more so than the muscle fiber. That is the critical thing. And if you look at paleomedicina, which is that um, clinic in Budapest, um, Hungary, they have treated over four thousand patients since 2011 that's a lot of guys and gals these are not rats and dogs these are human beings that have been studied in the obvious clinical sense and they have significant case reports that are documented where they are using this type of diet exclusively no um, prescription drugs no supplements just the diet getting the results so there is no question that changing the metabolic um, function of the body by a carnivore diet will create a very healthy environment. Is it for everybody? Probably, but I can't say that, so maybe 99%. But it is the way our ancestors ate. If you look at the digestive system in humans evo- from an evolutionary standpoint, we have a stomach acid that is designed to kill bacteria that are eating away uh, meats that are going to rot. We have a, a large length of a small intestine that is where the uh, animal products are digested. We have a very short colon, which would be the area where plants are digested, but we very rarely eat plants. And if you look at archaeological and anthropology um, areas in in the uh, prehistoric world, They have actually found bones and they can do nitrogen testing to determine what kind of foods, proteins that actually were in these people's gut. I can't believe science today, but they can do that. And they show that in our, um, um, Homo sapiens, and, and from at least 160,000 years ago probably, but certainly in the last 40 to 50,000 years ago, these humans, primitive humans, were actually consuming more animal-based products than plant-based products. Not 100%, but more, And our di- and our physiology of our digestive system tells the tale. We have a, like I said, we have a DNA blueprint that we can't really vacillate so much from. We have to have certain foods and we must remove or we cannot have certain toxic material or we will not function well. Why why try to fool mother nature? Just do the right thing. Eat the right foods and get rid of the toxins or avoid them and you're going to do really well. <laughs>
0: Couldn't nope. say it better myself. Oh, okay, <laughs> let me just screen share a few things here, so we'll put these in the show notes. I have some of the cases from PaleoMedicina. This is a poster presentation: treatment of high-grade brain tumor using paleolithic ketogenic diet. Three cases. Again, this is um, the paleolithic ketogenic diet is a is a carnivore diet. It is a an animal-based diet. So this next one is. Um, the complete sensation of cervical intraepithelial neoplasia. So that is uh, cervical cancer using a paleolithic ketogenic diet, a case report. So again, these will be in the show notes. And then I will, there's another one here, uh, halted progression of soft palate cancer in a patient treated with the paleolithic ketogenic diet alone, a 20-month follow-up. Um, I should mention, these are these are individual case studies, but uh, they're, they're impressive, or they're at least notable. And I think that um, they should not be ignored. And they uh, argue that we should be doing more research here. Treatment of rectal cancer with a paleolithic ketogenic diet, a 24-month follow-up. So there are um, published case reports from the folks at Paleomedicina using this uh, higher fat, lower protein, not low protein, but moderate protein animal-based carnivore diet in patients with cancer, so certainly compelling. Why don't you tell us briefly about your alternative cancer protocol, what you've come to from your lifetime sure. of research, and, and what absolutely. you're doing now beyond the meds and the carnivore I, diet?
1: Absolutely. So so basically, I will tell you, my oncologist is an unconventional co- oncologist, but he's a, a great guy. He wants me to bring him all the kind these kinds of articles that you just put up on the screen. He wants me to bring them to him so he can get more educated. He can't treat patients like he's treating me or he'll get sued because it's, not, it's outside the standard of care, but he's a really cool guy. And I will tell you that he has told me, and I'm not sure how many thousands of patients he's treated over his career, but he has had no patient that has gotten the results that I have gotten without chemotherapy and doing what I'm doing alternatively because nobody is doing this. And I don't like the word alternatively, because it means outside of the realm of medicine. It is the realm of medicine. It's just not appreciated or accepted within conventional medicine. But it's not alternative. It's just not understood yet. Um, So what I'm doing is definitely the carnivore diet. So if I'm listing things in the proper order of importance, my diet, I think, is Absolutely number one, but a very close number two is my gut microbiome and my gut microbiome, I would tell you that I have the healthiest gut that you can imagine. Um, how do I know that i really don 't except i don 't have any bleeding gums actually, I know what i 'm talking about, but I know that i don 't have any bleeding gums and I have great bowel movements if you want to get into it. I mean, everything is great. It's amazing what the carnivore diet does. It's a vital sign. Pooping is a vital sign. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so my gut r- microbiome is enhanced by a protocol that I share with anybody, but a protocol that is rigid, but it does several things. My concern is to reestablish a healthy, diverse um, commensal bacteria in my gut, Um, In addition, I want to make sure the mucus layer, which is a critical layer between the lumen and the epithelial barrier, is uh, 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 vibrant and very uh, robust. And I want to make sure the epithelial barrier, it does not have any increased intestinal permeability. Obviously, it opens and closes just to let nutrients into the bloodstream, but not in a way that is uh, pathological. So I want to do things that can maintain that. The way I do that, is that I take spore based probiotics. I use two companies. One is Microbiome Labs, which has a phenomenal product called Megasporbiotic. It's a combination of five bacillus spores that have been actually tested with double blind studies to show that it reduces endotoxemia. Uh, metabolic endotoxemia. Brilliant, wonderful studies. And I also use another spore-based probiotic by a company called EnviroMedica, and their product is called TerraFlora Deep Immune. It has five bacillus spores, two of which um, are different than the megaspore biotic, but they have an extra metabolite, not a living bacteria, but an extra metabolite that does go through the stomach acid, gets into the gut. But what it does is it stimulates interferon and a host of other um, downstream um, immunochemical um, uh, type of reactions that enhances your immune system. So I take both of those. I also take a product from microbiome labs, which really is a cutting-edge company, by the way, um, in my opinion, uh, that 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 helps to suck up excess lipopolysaccharides in the gut lumen, so that if I were to have leakage in the gut, which I'm probably I probably have, uh, especially kind of because of my Garzalex and exjiva um, does some bad things to the gut, but. Um, it, it does help to suck them up and reduce the concentration that could get through into the systemic circulation. So they, these are a variety of immunoglobulins that, um, that I get from microbiome labs. So, uh, there is a prebiotic that I use also from microbiome labs. It is a, an oligosaccharide, but I do eat honey. I eat honey every day. I love honey. Um, I will not give up honey. I generally eat Manuka honey or I get raw honey from my local um, farmer's market, but I do eat Manuka honey every day. So I believe that this is going to and has been extremely efficient for my microbiome um, in my gut. And like I said, the recent study about immunotherapy and an intact microbiome is critical. And when I shared that with my oncologist, it just opened his eyes. That's why he actually said to me, you need your case report put in a um, uh, prestigious medical journal. I'm actually looking for a physician who is more of a integrative kind of guy that really, or gal that really wants to write and put my case report into a medical journal. All my Data obviously is available, but um, that's a plug. If you know anybody, let's do it. But anyhow, so my, that's my second um, goal. The third goal is I want to enhance my immune system. Well, the 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 um, carnivore diet and the healthy microbiome go like ninety percent to make that that immune system ideal. But there are actually some herbal extracts that actually have been shown to enhance the innate as well as the adaptive immune system, specifically the innate. And I I think it's the innate, maybe the adaptive, but either way. um, And they consist of astragalus, echinacea, um, ashwagandha, um, and German uh, ginseng. And those four have been reported to enhance the immune system, not necessarily kill cancer. I'm not, I'm not curing cancer, by the way. I am just enhancing my natural ability to heal my body. That'll, that will take care of the cancer automatically, I believe. So this is just one extra tool to enhance my immune system. The other thing that I do is kind of unique. A lot of people don't understand it, and some people that understand it are using the, the wrong um, equipment. Uh, and and it is pulsed electromagnetic field therapy. Now, pulsed electromagnetic field therapy is kind of interesting. It is electromagnetic fields, but it's not the dirty electromagnetic fields that we can talk about that you and I are looking at each other on, this Computer screen, but these are pulse, meaning that it comes, goes in and out. I mean, it goes on and off, and the frequencies, at least the mat that I use, and the mat is like a yoga mat, and I put it in my bed, and it's soft, you can't even feel it. But what it, this mat does is it generates a harmonic series of waves in the low frequency range that is compatible and um, uh, relevant to human cell frequencies. You know, our body is an electrical being. We are electrical. If we shut off the electricity in our body, we would be dead. And so we are electrical beings, and everything communicates in a variety of chemical waves, possibly sound waves, and certainly electrical frequencies. And this Type of concept: Pulse electromagnetic field therapy stimulates the frequencies in the human cells, so that it can support and repair damage in the cellular membrane. Because the millivoltage potential from the outside to the inside of the cell has weakened, it's almost like um, a a battery in a flashlight. You know if you want the the flashlight to light, you have to put batteries in it, you turn the light on and you got a bright light and you leave the light on and it starts to dim because the batteries are getting weaker. And eventually the light goes out because the batteries are dead. And those batteries are basically the mitochondria of our cells. And sometimes these mitochondria are dysfunctional, creating cancer and also the membrane of the cells don't have the, the um, sucking power to get the, the, the good stuff in and the bad stuff or the waste out. And this pulse electromagnetic field therapy has been shown in a variety of um, studies that have been published in many medical journals to help bone and soft tissue heal. And one of the reasons is it helps the ion transfer as well as the mitochondria. So I use this pulse electromagnetic field uh, mat. Now the problem is there are many many mats that use a single type of wave that they just turn on and off, and it spikes on and off, and it does emit dirty electromagnetic magnetic fields along with their pulse fields. The mat that I use have uh, has three patents, and that is important because it filters out the dirty electromagnetic field spikes of 50 to 60 hertz. It also does create That patent creates the harmonic frequency balance of many, many frequencies of uh, their wave pattern. And it has a patent that shows how it um, improves the ion transfer between the inside and the outside of the cell. So I think that's critical. And I do what I do like a shotgun effect. I want everything that can support my healing potential. I have no cure for cancer. But what I have, I believe, is a... Healing method that can support the immune system for everybody. I just wonder how COVID would be expressing itself in the world if everybody followed the type of um, protocols that I'm recommending, which is not crazy and, and out of sight.
0: No, and I think that I've talked about this so many times that if people were just a little more, if the media were talking about the connections with insulin resistance and Reasonable things in terms of immunologic tolerance and overall immune health, COVID would not be as much of an issue, in my opinion. And, and I just wanted to thank you for sharing your protocol. Again, it's it's not something um, that uh, I'll put a link to this, and people use, as you said, people can get this protocol from you. Uh, you give it out to people. There's no affiliation with Microbiome Labs. I'm not endorsing Microbiome Labs. This is just what Dr. Al uses, and I wanted you all to know what he's using, and for him to have a chance to to share what he's using. I might differ a little bit. I'm not a huge fan of astragalus and ginger and plant-based compounds. Oh no, no, no. Gin,
1: not ginger, ginseng. But that's ginseng,
0: okay. astragalus. Yeah. I'm, okay. I'm not a huge fan of those. But again, I'll, I'll put this in the. Um, I'll put the um, the protocol. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Here it is. So,
1: so I have to ask you a question. Why are you not a fan of it? What what is um, contrary to your way of thinking? I have just never resources. seen any
0: evidence that that the plant based compounds really improve the immune system above what we can do with other things. And clinically, I've seen repeatedly that people, when people do that, they get a host of, of bad reactions. And I, you know, just intuitively, kind of one of the reasons that I think a carnivore diet is helpful for people is that Astragalus doesn't want to get eaten. And if you know, I do think that plant molecules can be beneficial as medications, uh, but if we're using it for an immune tonic effect. I don't think that, that it's going to work that way. I haven't seen clinical evidence. I haven't seen any real convincing research evidence that that's the case. Um, and again, it, it kind of goes back to like the hormesis argument and the idea that, hey, I think that just by being in the sunlight, living well, eating a good diet, getting the nutrients in, we, in the diet that we need, and getting um, the, you know, having a microbiome that is healthy and diverse via a variety of outdoor exposures, I think we'll be, we'll be pretty darn close to optimal. Now, you know, it's funny because I was on a podcast recently with uh, uh, my friend Allie Miller, and and I think she accurately characterized me as um, I'm kind of a minimalist when it comes to medicine. I would I'm I'm an ancestral minimalist, and I, like I said, I'm super interested in monoclonal antibodies and the way they're used in this case, but. I always just wonder, what does it look like if we just live very simply, if we just use the smallest number of things and get out in the sun and eat some dirt and swim in lakes and rivers? And in your case, certainly it's a unique situation, but I am kind of a medical ancestral minimalist when it comes to that stuff.
1: I am in total agreement with you, but I um, am still a cancer patient and I have, believe me, I have a compromised body and you do not. And so I, that's why I have looked into certain things to support if I can. And, and, uh, that's not number one or two on my list, but that's what I have accumulated from the knowledge that I've read that may enhance. And if it makes sense to me with no uh, side effects that I can perceive, um, I've uh, incorporated it. So, uh, I take what you're saying uh, completely, and I agree with you.
0: Yeah, and I think it's good. You know, these podcasts are always a great space for healthy discourse. I found an article while we were talking that I want to share with everyone. Um, I don't know if this is the one. Uh, I want to get those articles from you after the show, and I'll put them in the show notes. But this one is at least an article showing uh, the gut microbiome as a biomarker for immunotherapy and colorectal cancer. And this is really one of the coolest take-homes that I'm um, – you know, gleaning from this podcast is that the gut microbiome is going to affect the efficacy of immunotherapy in cancers. And so we cannot underemphasize this. You know, we just, we have too much to discuss and we've already gone probably almost two hours at this point. I just want to wrap up with a few more points, (laughs) but I just want to ask you right now, like, how are you, I mean, people, I hope people can watch this video and see how vital you are as, as a 73 year old, uh, you know, yep. I hope that I am as vital as you when I am seventy three, and it's very clear that every time we've spoken on the phone, you're just engaging and gregarious and happy. And I think that speaks volumes about the work that you're doing for yourself. and it's so heroic that you're sharing this with other people. But I just want to hear from you how you're feeling these days with the current protocol and with the with the cancer where it's at.
1: I'm feeling fantastic. Um, And and I stay active. Now, I don't see clinical patients anymore. I have some limitations. Um, I can walk, but I can't walk long. But I do walk about a mile every other day outside. I do squats, but they're modified. I do push-ups, but they're modified. I have this still broken right humerus that has healed with callus formation. If you were to see it, uh, you, you would look at my biceps and you would think that I'm kind of a he-man, but actually that bump in the bicep is actually the broken, humorous, uh, whatever. But. I, my limitations are minor. I I really am great. I feel fantastic. I have tremendous energy until about seven o'clock at night and then I conk out. But other than that, I get up early and that's the way I like to live, but I am doing really well. And I I stay active. Like I said, I do a lot of consultations all over the world. And now that I've got this cancer um, protocol that's given me at least a good healing response, people are becoming interested. So I do these Skype or Zoom consults from all over the world, which is very exciting. And and what I, one other thing I want to introduce to you is that um, I actually was asked to be a um, on I was asked to be the chair of the periodontal uh, division for the International Academy of Biological Dentistry and Medicine. They also wanted me to do some writing for them, and I I figured that you know what we're talking about. Everybody should know, certainly in the medical community, and dentists should know what I'm talking about, but so few do, which is sad, even the ones that call themselves biological dentists. So what I wanted to do and what I've done is to create a certification program for the IABDM, the International Academy of Biological and uh, Dentistry and Medicine, which consists of four one-and-a-half-hour recorded programs, seminars, and lots and lots of written material that I've created independently, and it's offered on their website. Uh, And it's for dentists, dental hygienists, and dental staff. And they will actually receive, when they complete it and take the final exam, they will receive this unique certification, a certified biological nutritional dental professional, which is unlike any certification program in the world. There is no program that puts nutrition and bio- biological dentistry together. I just don't get it, but, but it, it's not there yet, and it's there right now. Because like I said, the mouth is the mirror to the rest of the body. The best professional, the, he- the, the most obvious professional that looks in the mouth all the time and should understand what they see in the mouth is the dentist, at least the biological dentist, who understands the biology of the system, understands that every cell speaks to every other cell in the body. And if they can understand this, even if they can't treat the rest of the body, they see signs and symptoms of other systemic diseases, then they can refer them to other physicians, other integrative medical people to take care of the problem. And they need to be aware of it and this certification gives them a host of information of how diet and lifestyle change the body.
0: I think that that could be a uh a key factor in changing dentistry in general, and I think it's amazing. And now that I'm an honorary dentist, I got my yes, honorary I, DDS I, I today. I know. I know. I've, I need to I've look into it. At, but,
1: Yeah, you got it.
0: I got it. But we just, my goodness, there's so much that I want to talk about. We'll have to go do another podcast and get into ketosis and all this other kind of stuff. I think that I just want to start. We should wrap up in the interest of time, but I want to wrap up with a few things that to highlight and bring it back around. I, I wish that we didn't have to talk about coronavirus every time, but I still think that, you know, this is being recorded in June, on June the 14th, and it's going to be released on the 15th or 16th. And so, you know, I think it's important to realize the things that that, that we've both been saying for so long, that there are six in 10 in the U.S. having a chronic disease. Is it any wonder that coronavirus, that COVID is a big deal? Uh, four in 10 adults have two or more. And, this is, you know, the leading cause of death and disability, leading drivers of the nation's 3.5 trillion annual healthcare costs. Chronic diseases are reversible, and most chronic diseases begin in the gut. Uh, 20% or excuse me, 39.8% in 2015 and 2016 of adults aged over 20 were obese, and 716 in 2015, 2016 we're overweight, including obesity. And that's that's four, five years ago, you guys. So these it's are scary, scary. statistics. Is it is it, scary. Is it any wonder that coronavirus is a problem? And the answer is not rocket science. It's many of the things that we've been talking about. As, as a teaser for, for future podcasts, um, if people are interested in ketosis and cancer, uh, I did talk a lot about ketogenic physiology when I had Dom Diagostino on. And I, I want to get Tom Seyfried on. I think that all I will say about this is that we, from my reading of the science, we don't know uh, what's going on here. I don't think that a ketogenic diet is going to harm cancer, but there are many papers. This one is probably the best one that I've found looking at glycolysis, tumor metabolism, cancer growth, and a pH-based idiopathogenic perspective uh, and therapeutic approach to the cancer question. Basically, what what I've taken away from this paper is this. um, In cancer cells, the conversion of pyruvate into lactate takes place even in the presence of oxygen. We're getting back into a little bit of the weeds here. This is biochemistry. This conversion in in normal human biochemistry, glycolysis is the formation of pyruvate from glucose. And usually pyruvate can become acetyl-CoA, which enters the Krebs cycle for oxidative phosphorylation. And in normal physiology, when there is no oxygen for that pyruvate to become, uh, to go into acetyl-CoA and that acetyl-CoA to go into to the Krebs cycle, then the pyruvate will go into lactate. That is what is called glucose fermentation. But in many cancer cells, there seems to be a change in the metabolism, whereas the pyruvate is going into lactate even in the presence of oxygen. This is called the Warburg effect. And no one debates the Warburg effect. But people do debate the Warburg hypothesis. And this is something that Thomas Seyfried is an advocate for. But in in from what I have seen in the literature, we don't know this for sure yet. And the Warburg hypothesis is simply that it is a broken metabolic engine, which is driving cancer. And as they mentioned in this paper, um, it, the oxidative phosphorylation still happens in many cancer cells. It's just that this this conversion of pyruvate to lactate happens in the presence of oxygen, which is abnormal, and both of them happen at the same time. Cancer cells have a high rate of glycolysis, even in the presence of oxygen. Therefore, cancer cells prefer to increase the LDH to PDH. This is the lactate dehydrogenase to pyruvate dehydrogenase ratio. The reason I'm just mentioning this is because this is a much bigger podcast, and this is a much bigger bigger thing that we're trying to figure out with cancer. Um, I think that the main hypothesis now, and, and again, it's all hypotheses, we don't know for sure, is that it? perhaps this may not actually be driving the cancer, and that the cancers may be doing this because of hypoxia, because they need to preserve oxygen. And as the authors of this paper are saying, the primary cause of cancer, again, this is just their opinion, appears to be the main cause behind the aerobic glycolysis of tumors and that is meaning that glycolysis is happening um, with oxygen not present and that the uh, that even with oxygen present that the glucose is being fermented into lactate, a profound disruption of the homeostatic acid balance of the cell represented by an abnormally high pH induced and maintained by an extremely varied number of etiological factors, of different natures. There's a whole nother review there. Basically, this is all jargony. I apologize, you guys. The takeaway is that I think that, if anything, in my mind, this says a couple of things. I don't think a ketogenic diet is going to be harmful in cancer. As we know, it's a pretty darn safe intervention. But I'm not convinced that, that, um, that I totally agree with the work of Tom Seyfried to tell you the truth. And we're not convinced that we can say for sure that the Warburg hypothesis is correct. Uh, the Warburg effect appears to be in, the, in presence. Now, the reason that's important to me is that if I think that the folks at paleomedicina are doing great work and I disagree with their conclusions, I don't think it's the ketogenic nature of a paleolithic ketogenic diet. This is just my hypothesis that is driving the improvements or potential improvements in cancer therapies. And I fear, and I want to say this, to anyone listening, I I don't agree with many of the things that the folks at Paleo medicine are doing. I think that they're limiting calories too much and they're not allowing enough protein. And I think that unfortunately they're a little too dogmatic about this. And I've had some sort of negative feedback from people about their work. And this is not to criticize anyone else's work. I'm just being honest about this. Uh, if people are doing their stuff and finding improvements, that's great. But I I think that they're too dogmatic about limiting calories too much at paleomedicina. And they are of the opinion that it's a ketogenic diet that is improving these cancers. And I think the literature, at least my read of it would suggest there's something else going on as well. Ketones may be helpful, but um, I think that what it kind of circles back to, and this brings the whole conversation full circle is, I think the benefits of an animal based diet might be more in the microbiome and that that the microbiota consideration of cancer might be as important, if not more important, than the metabolic approach. And that in addition to a metabolic cancer of therapy, we're going to need a microbiotic cancer of therapy. We touched on this earlier, the idea that the elimination of plant foods, I believe, could be very beneficial for the gut lining. And that, I think, could be giving us many of the benefits from metabolic perspective, from a cancer perspective as well, I just want to, that's the teaser for the next podcast. Maybe I'll get Dom back on, maybe I'll get Tom Seyfried on, and we can dig into more detail about metabolic therapies and the evidence for and against the Warburg hypothesis. But I'm personally, I'm just not convinced that that ketosis, deep ketosis, caloric restriction is really driving the improvements that we're seeing in in these patients. And I think there could be something else going on too. We can't forget that this type of diet is having many other benefits. So I just wanted to mention that. Again, we don't have time to go into all of it, but I'm curious for your thoughts on that kind of stuff as well.
1: My feeling is you're absolutely correct. I certainly do not uh, limit calories as a matter of fact. And I think um, paleo medicina also believes that you eat whenever you're hungry as often as you want, drink when you're thirsty, that kind of thing, which I do. I'm not sure exactly what they're limiting or not, other than I know that they're not allowing or hopefully not allowing um, supplements and or prescription medications. And I do believe, without a doubt, the gut microbiome plays a huge role and they ignore that in paleomedicina. So I am not um, promoting the paleomedicina clinic's diet per se, I am just using that as reference because I see case reports that are very impressive with um, incurable diseases, including other chronic diseases as well as cancer. And like you said, the microbiome is huge, and I do believe it's huge. And that's why it's uh, a close runner-up to number one, which is my diet. And without a doubt, (laughs) the, the, the carnivore diet is the way to clean out your gut. And if nothing else, it's the perfect elimination diet if you wanted to go back to something else. But I I am uh, under the belief right now that this is the way I'm eating, and I will tweak it and get into other things. And I do honey, like I said. Um, But I would never have put myself into a diet and not or have ignored my microbiome. That would be um, n- not practical or relevant for me.
0: Yeah. And you actually shared this with me. It's something that I've oh, talked Oh, this is about fascinating. Before.
1: Yeah. This is yeah, fascinating. That,
0: that, um, and I'm going to be doing many more podcasts in the next month and coming months about the GI microbiome, you guys, and, and animal-based diets. But as I talked about in my book, there are many ways that amino acids can be fermented into short-chain fatty acids in the human gut, Uh, I've spoken about this repeatedly. Everyone gets all worried and says, if you're not eating plant fiber, you can't get butyrate. Well, here you absolutely can. You can also get acetate, propionate, uh, isovalerate, isobutyrate, different amino acids can easily be fermented into multiple uh, short-chain fatty acids, including butyrate. Again, more foreshadowing for future podcasts. But it's amazing
1: that we don't know what we don't know. Isn't that correct?
0: We don't. We just don't. It's and I get this question every time I do a podcast. I did one with Genova the other day, and they said, "You know, our listeners are going to worry about plant fiber and short chain fatty acids." And I said, "Okay, let's just talk about this." So, so I think in summary, as we wrap it up, I just want to leave the listener with the idea that um, you know what we're talking about here is gut health, beginning with. Um, the elimination of toxins of various types that can open the gut junctions, starting with processed grains, processed sugars, processed oils, progressing to plant compounds that could be damaging for some people, connected with the microbial environment of the mouth, which we should not be napalming and over-sterilizing and certainly using your mouth health and your gingival health and your dental health as an indication of your overall health and your gut health, don't take a mouthwash. If you have bad breath, correct your diet. If you have gum bleeding and periodontitis or gingivitis, talk to Dr. Al, talk to a dentist who's taken that course, Uh, you know, change your diet, realize that it's all connected. And also, you know, here's a real life example of someone who's walking the walk, talking the talk, has a medical background and has uh, a pretty aggressive cancer that is doing very well, thankfully, um, on a diet that most of medicine would say is going to kill you. And instead, you're thriving with labs that continue to improve with a gut microbiome that appears to be just fine without fiber. And I look forward to hearing about your continued progress. Anything you'd like to add to kind of wrap it all up and a tie it in a bow for people?
1: You have done the most thorough interview that I have had, and I've actually had eight podcasts this (laughs) week. I mean, you are amazing. No, this is fantastic. I just want to let other people know, if you are diagnosed with a life-threatening disease, it may be cancer, it may be something else. Just don't go into the, the uh, medical community listening to one medical practitioner that says, your life is going to end. Do this or else. Ask some questions. If you can't ask the correct questions uh, and get correct answers, fire that healthcare professional and go to somebody else. Do some independent research. My source is PubMed. Uh, gov, which is great. I, I want to know what other people, medical people, are reporting in peer reviewed journals everywhere in the world to see if if what one group is doing and another group is confirming. I don't want to do anything that only one group can, can say it works and everybody else says it doesn't work. I want to get ideas. And that way you can get um, an appreciation of what alternative therapies are, and, and create your own protocol or work with other uh, integrative physicians to help you, what you do what you do. And I hope you have a significant other like I do, my wife, that can help support you in times of depression. And you are going to have bouts of depression. Believe me, I've been there. I was in hospice ready to die, and I'm, I'm healthier today than I've been in a long time. So I'm, I'm doing well. But but be open, be open-minded.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. We're so- Thanks. We're so lucky to have your story. Um, I look forward to, to giving you a real hug at some point soon. The last question I always ask people is, what is the most radical thing that you have done recently, my friend?
1: Yes, so the most radical thing was, I guess, to learn that my cancer is not evident on a PET scan. So, I was kind of excited. I actually went out to dinner and said, you know, my protocols are the way they are. If I'm doing anything radical, I'm continuing to tweak my protocols. If anything that I will be doing in the future is going to maybe change the strict carnivore diet to include, some, uh, vegetables and or fruits based on your recommendations, of course. <laughs> um, and, and certainly I'm doing honey and we'll continue to do honey. And, um, who knows, I might even give some second thoughts to, to those herbs you told me about. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and where can people find more of your stuff? I
0: showed sure. your website earlier, drdandenberg.com.
1: Right. It's drdanenberg.com com. That would be the website. Um, if you wanted to contact me, there's a little button that you can press on the navigation bar. Write your comment. It goes to an email. I'll answer all my emails. Um, if you want to consult, I do that. That's on the navigation bar. I wrote a book um, actually a year before I was diagnosed called Crazy Good Living. That's available on Amazon. It talks about the pillars of health and everything that we're talking about. Related to the gut, to oral health, and overall well-being. Um, and I would love to come on as as I get cured and finally tell you that this incurable disease has actually be, been cured by an N equals one.
0: <laughs> and then hopefully an N equals many.
1: So we'll see. Well, that's, That'd be great. That'd be yeah. Great.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on. And like I said, I look forward to seeing you very soon.
1: Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it.
0: All right, you guys. I, as you can probably tell, I do a lot of work to prepare for these podcasts. I have a lot of studies up. I'm sharing studies during the show. If you're listening, um, on iTunes and you want to see the studies there in the show notes, which will be on my website, carnivoremd.com, or you can watch the YouTube video, which will have a lot of the studies that I talked about this week. But this is my passion. I love sharing information. This is my why. Um, I'm trying to decrease the amount of untruth out there, to increase the amount of truth and to share with you all information that will change your life for the better. As you know, the second edition of my book, The Carnivore Code is out for pre-order now, thecarnivorecodebook.com, official release August the 4th, 2020. And my sponsors, Nutrisense.io, Blue Blocks, B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com, WhiteOakPastures.com. You can use the code CarnivoreMD at all of those places, and you will get a little bit of a discount. And they'll know I sent you, and we are all part of a happy tribe, and we support each other. Uh, I am in Texas now. I'm in Austin. We are doing a meetup on June the 28th at uh, Terry Black's Barbecue. Come out, hang out with me. We're probably going to take the food over to Zilker and get some sunlight and vitamin D and be in the outside to improve our microbiomes. And that is going to be fun. I will hopefully see you there. White Oak Cellars is coming out in October, October 9th and 10th. Stay tuned for more details regarding that one. I have a super exciting project that I am working on um, to bring you all uh, organ meats from regenerative farms in the most accessible way possible, which I will tell you about very soon. I can't tell you just yet, but next few weeks, stay tuned for very exciting announcement coming from me. I'm loving it in Texas. It's beautiful here. I'm so grateful to be here. If you live in Austin, oh, come to the meetup. I want to be a part of your community. I'm so excited to be a part of this community. The people here are amazing And I hope to see you all in Texas at some point soon. So as always, you can sign up for my newsletter at carnivoremd.com. Please leave my book a review on Amazon if you've read it, thecarnivorecodebook.com for pre-orders or to go to Amazon and leave a review. And please leave this podcast a review on iTunes if you like it. It helps us reach so many more people. All right, you guys, that is it for this week. I love you all. And I cannot wait to talk to you again next week. Like I said, I've got some exciting ones coming up and I can't wait to share. Have a great day. Stay radical.